Huh. Lord, we just want to continue in your presence. We don't really care what happens as long as it's what you're doing. We just want to be involved. We just want to participate with you. We want to encounter you. We want to engage with you. And we want to give you glory. And we just thank you that you know so much and we know so little. So we have to rely on you. That you really do help us in times of trouble. And that you really do care about the longings and desires of our heart. We bless you, God. We bless you, God. In Jesus' name. What, what, uh, was there any questions from yesterday you guys thought about after you left, after you guys kind of had a night to think about it? What are some questions or thoughts from yesterday? Just a, a few, if there's any. If not, we'll jump right back in. But if there's anything, just a couple things. Um, thank you. What was your name? Madison. Madison. You have business all over you. You have an entrepreneurial spirit, a divine entrepreneurial spirit. And the Lord is going to use you in the area of business for sure. Like you can see that like, again, it's not about being like a typical businesswoman. It's about that you are actually super creative and that creativity, like you think outside the box. You think in ways that other people don't think. You see things that other people don't see. That's an entrepreneurial spirit. And God wants to use that. It's, it's hard because don't diminish that or, or, little, or make that small and make it like a ministry thing. It's like, no, he actually wants to use you to steward millions of dollars. And that's not like, I don't give hype words like, you're going to be so rich, you know, because I don't think that's true for everyone. Sorry, everybody. I apologize in advance. But, but like, I think that there's just a gift on your life to know how to help people steward their millions and how to help them invest their money because you're a good steward. You're a good steward. And I feel like God's so proud of, like, the way that you've stewarded the little bit you've had because you've been generous and nobody else knows it. And you've been generous in ways that God has seen and in the next 10 years, you'll see more money than you've ever seen in your whole life. You really will. And it's because you sowed when nobody was looking. And he's seen every single seed you planted. Time, finances, those little times you gave $50 that nobody saw. He's going to touch them. So, does that make sense? Good. You're welcome. Now, don't just get a question because you might get a word. But if you have, yeah. Perfect. We'll get there. 
I don't want to jump into that, but I'll, I will talk about it. Because a lot of it, like I said yesterday, a lot of it has to do with our lack of the word, our lack of the knowledge of the word and the knowledge of God. And so a lot of it is we just don't know what the Bible says. So I say stuff like that, and it seems like a really massive statement. And then we just look in the word at a few places and find like, oh my gosh, like, wow, like I know more about God. So therefore my faith has expanded. My, my faith in my wife is huge. My trust in my wife is massive because why I've spent time with her and I know her. And so that's, that's how my trust builds with my wife. Cause I know her, I know everything about her. Our marriage is good largely in part because there's nothing hidden. Like I don't, there's nothing in my life and my finances in anything that my wife doesn't know. So therefore she can fully and completely trust me because she knows me. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the basis, but we'll get there. Because also, faith, we're going to talk about the hard part of faith, which is God will actually give you a word and then not complete it in your generation. And that's when real faith actually elevates you into a place of seeing beyond your current generation. And I've heard some preachers say, God will never give you a word that he doesn't intend to fulfill. And I just don't think that's actually true. He may actually give you a word that he doesn't intend to fill in your lifetime, but with your life generations away from you. Because that's the kind of perspective that God has. I mean, why else would he give us the beginning of Matthew, a genealogy? You know what I mean? He gives us a genealogy to tell us, I'm not just concerned with your lifetime, but how your lifetime impacts the lifetimes behind you. And in fact, what I really believe is that God actually cares more about bloodlines than he does spiritual children. Like, you know, that whole thing of like, oh, you're like spiritual sons and daughters. That's really beautiful, but I believe God wants to touch natural bloodlines. He actually cares about your last name and where your family came from and where your family is going. I can prove that from Old Testament to New. God cares about bloodlines. And you may go, my bloodline sucks. And he goes, I know. That's why you were born. Does that make sense? Because real prophecy sees past the junk and goes, where's the gold? You know what I mean? And so there's a little bit in there. We're going to talk about it from Hebrews 11. But what else? A couple more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to touch on it when I go into the timeline, but this, it, the, to touch on the art is selfish. Art is inherently selfish because we make it for ourselves and want people to applaud our talent. But if art only points to us, then it's not really art because it's not pointing to anything that means more than what we feel it means in that moment. That's why art today sucks. Honestly, art today is like, yeah, whatever. I could use a bunch of derogatory terms to describe it, but it's essentially people going, look, isn't this art? I'm amazing. And we're supposed to applaud it. Like, wow, you're just being, you're just so, uh, uh, what's the, what's the language for it? Oh, you're, you're just, it's so deep. Cause you're just exploring your own self. Like I go to a modern art museum and I just want to rip things off the walls and set them on fire and be like, yeah, my two year old could have made this. Well, I was just expressing my inner child self. It was a statement about government. It's a blank canvas. I know it's empty. 
you're an idiot. Like, that's not art. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, that is not art. That's not art. Art is Genesis 1. God saw nothing and he made something. The very first description of God in the entire Bible is creative. In the beginning, God created. The first description we get of him is, gosh, he's creative. He didn't look in an encyclopedia to figure out what a universe looks like. He did it out of his own creative genius. You know what I'm saying? Like, and so for me, but the point is, then we get into the Psalms and we find that all of creation points to him. The heavens are declaring his glory. The trees of the field claps their hands. If you stop singing, the rocks themselves will cry out. Like there's worship all around you. It points to him. So all we need is not another painting of a lion or an eagle. We actually need something that points people to Jesus and his, who he is. If you paint a lion or an eagle, that's nice. I'm just, I'm saying there's probably a little bit more to it. Okay. It's like, let's just go. And and you don't just give people a paintbrush and call it prophetic art. You would never hand somebody a Bible and go, would you just, just prophetically preach to our church this weekend? No, like you don't just hand people stuff and tell them that's prophecy because they're doing it unto the Lord. You know what I mean? It's like art is inherently selfish because most of it points to us. At the end of the day, we don't know how to make art that points to God that's good. Unless we paint a line and go, see, it's Jesus. You know what I'm saying? I get, this is just me. I get more out of secular soul searching songs by Amos Lee, Ray LaMontagne, like all those guys. than I do out of most worship music. I think worship music sucks. Most of it. Sorry. I apologize. I don't think it sucks because it's not good. I think it sucks because I think we can do more. Does that make sense? We're not pushing ourselves. That's not creative. In fact, I just watched an interview with Coldplay or with, uh, with Billy Corgan that I could show you. I don't know if any of you following on Twitter or anything, but it's like, I just, I posted it like four times. Cause I was like, you, you need to see this. And then I was like, I don't think all of you watch this yet. You need to watch this right now. You know what I mean? And I'm like, watch this, watch this, watch this, you know? And you got TVs in here. I'll just bring my connector like tomorrow and we'll watch a couple of videos that I could show you that will blow your brains up. So, um, so just prepare helmets and stuff. So, um, but Billy Corgan, the short of it, I'll share it. I'll share it when we get to that part. But basically what Billy Corgan says, he gets in inter- Billy Corgan is lead singer was the lead singer of smashing pumpkins. Okay. Okay. So Billy Corgan is being interviewed by a British television show and they ask him, so where do you think this is going? It's like three minutes. Where do you think this is going? And he says, the great unexplored territory of rock and roll is God. And he goes, the lady was like, kind of like, huh? And he's like, yeah, God's the great unexplored territory. He's infinite and all these things, you know? And he kind of just says, you know, it's just, I want to explore God. That's what I feel like I'm exploring. And he says, well, what would you say to Christian musicians? (laughs) And I'm like, this is the best question of all time. He said, what do you think Jesus would say? What do you think Jesus would say to Christian musicians? And he said this, I think he'd tell them to make better music. He said, I don't think Jesus would listen to that kind of music. And then he said this. And then he said, I don't think Christian music has to sound like you two or Coldplay. Hello, worship music. Somebody pay attention. You know? I've, I've met more worship leaders who are into Radiohead and Cigarettes, yet their worship music sounds like Chris Tomlin, and I don't understand why. That doesn't make any sense to me. You're listening to awesome music and you're repeating what somebody else already did. Why? 
The only, there's only one reason. Not because you want to please God. Because you want to please everybody else. There's, that's the only reason you do that. Does that make sense? That's the only reason you would listen to something like Cigarettes and Radiohead and then make your worship music sound like something else. Why can't worship music sound like Radiohead? Why is that? Is there a rule? Did I miss that in the Bible? Is that somewhere in the, like, did I miss it? Is it in the Apocrypha? I just didn't read that part. Like, where is it? Like, why can't worship music sound like Cigarettes? Why can't we not have fat, huge, thundering beats in the midst of our, our worship? I'm, not, I'm confused why we're not allowed to have house music be worship music. Why is that possible? Do you know the devil never created one musical note? The devil never created instru- instruments. He never created any song or sound ever. He is not a creator. He is a distorter and a perverter. And what we've done generation after generation is tell our kids that is the devil's music. And then we've literally handed over entire styles of music to the devil by giving him the authority in it before the church ever got a hold of it. Jimi Hendrix is a prophet. Want me to prove it? It's really easy. He shows up to an anti-American festival called Woodstock and what's the greatest moment in the entire Woodstock thing that everybody remembers? Jimi Hendrix playing the national anthem. And they loved it. Only a prophet can show up And sing the anthem or play the anthem of the nation that everybody's supposed to be anti. And they go, that's amazing. Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan would be rejected in this generation of music. If we are in the midst of a generation that would, would seriously like not sign Dylan, we have an issue. We have a problem. Johnny Cash. If you're not listening to any of these people, you are missing out, I promise you. If you don't even know who I'm talking about, you, you listen to some music. <laughs> Get schooled. Not because you're like, not, I'm not saying you should enjoy it. I'm saying you should. Some things you just need to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Some things you just need to go and listen to. Some of the new stuff I would say you should go listen to. But I'll tell you this. Here's the clearest sign. Kurt Cobain, lead singer in Nirvana, is screaming, come as you are, when the church is figuring out how to keep you out. Come as you are should have been our song. That was our song and our sound, and we missed it. Because the church was busy trying to figure out how to fix people, instead of just saying, come as broken as you are. And you think God's done inventing sounds and instruments? No, he's just getting started. Computers nowadays, you can do anything. Trent Reznor is a genius from Nine Inch Nails. That guy is a genius. He's a genius. We're missing out on so much music because we're so boring. Huh? I don't know. Whatever. Don't go listen to secular music and get your head all twisted up. If you can't, some people, it just leads them to a bad place. It doesn't really affect me. I just love the art of it. I like when someone says exactly what they're thinking. And so then I can literally get at least a healthy perspective about where they're coming from. Most Christians, I don't know where they're coming from because they sound just like everyone else. They're just repeating somebody else. Does that make sense? They're literally just regurgitating, vomiting up something they heard last week from Bill Johnson. I don't care what Bill Johnson had to say. I want to know what you had to say. What do you think? I know what Bill Johnson thinks. I downloaded the same podcast. I don't need you to regurgitate it to me. I just need to know what you think. That's why I told you guys, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not saying everything I'm going to tell you is right. You may come back at me with a question and I'll go, oh yeah, that is, yeah, I'm sorry I said that. 
I've actually done that in DTS before. Somebody goes, well, what about this? And I'm like, wow, that was a really good point I did not think of. You are correct that I was wrong. Because I'm not here to be right. I don't care about being right. I just want to think. I want to think out loud. I want us to discuss this stuff and actually have a unique, creative thought that came from my head, not somebody else's. You know? And if you're a musician sitting in this room, get a creative idea. Okay? Like, get something going on that's yours. I don't care if Jesus Culture sells a million albums. I don't care if Hillsong United sells a million albums. There already is a Hillsong United in Jesus Culture. You do not have to be them now. It's okay. Permission granted. God already created them. Now you get to be you. You can listen to them, appreciate them. Please don't try to be them. That's a waste of your time. In my opinion. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting how you said that in our traditional faith, we're the glorious brother and stuff are essentially that's kind of what everyone that's right. that secular music is not meant to glorious brother Actually, you know what's interesting is I would say that more secular music is made for the glory of God that they don't even know it's for the glory of God. So for this reason. With, for this reason. Well, no, because in, when we're saved, it's completely different. Because when we're saved, we have the Holy Spirit. So, we know, we're, so we're responsible for what we have. Does that make sense? We're responsible in the presence of God to say, I am not going to respond selfishly. That's the whole idea of love that we're going to eventually get to at some point. But the, the reality is, is that now I have a responsibility. Because I have information. I have a different presence. I have this on me. Does that make sense? So I'm responsible for that. So I have to respond unselfishly. That's the demand of heaven, by the way. So, like, respond unselfishly. So it means I'm going to make art, not for me, but I'm going to make it to draw other people in. So I'm going to go and make this big expression. Where for the secular person, they're, they're seekers. They're exploring. So most of their music is them in the middle of exploring. That's why they're making art. Because they're looking for something outside of themselves. So it's, for me, it's, it, it could be yes and, or Maybe both, you know, some of it is like, yeah, that's inherently selfish too. I just happen to get more out of it because it's honest. I guess that would probably be a better answer. Like, I think you're, you're probably right in a lot of ways. It's just, I get more out of it because at least it's honest. You know, the very first song I ever sang in church, like in a service that we planned was Dear God by a band called XTC that was written in the eighties. And the whole center of the song says, Dear God, um, well, the, <laughs> The middle of it says, I won't believe in heaven or hell. No saints, no sinners, no devil as well. No pearly gates, no thorny crowns. You're always letting us humans down. Um, uh, nope, didn't change any of them. Saying the song just like it was. Reason being, most of the people sitting in those seats felt the exact same way. But because they weren't willing to admit it, they couldn't get healed from it. So the moment we sang the song, 300 people got saved. Because honesty and authenticity is what births real relationships. So the moment I am free to say that, like, like our, our, me and my wife's chapter in the culture of honor book, we've got leaders from all over the planet coming up to me and going, well, uh, I read your chapter. My marriage is a mess. People you guys all know and love probably, but nobody's being honest enough to go, Hey, marriage is freaking hard. It is really hard. Super hard. Being a parent, even harder. Not that there isn't joy in it, but it is not easy. You know, like, Oh, I got married. Cause I, couldn't handle my lust. Well, then you're going to have a long way to go, my friend, because marriage will expose every selfishness inside of you and either kill it or magnify it. And you'll end up divorced or cheating. 
So for me, it's like I, people got more out of the authenticity. And I guess that's what I'm trying to say is when we as Christians have a responsibility to the world to introduce them to a loving father, a good God. Not who's always happy, but a real God who actually is full of wrath, full of judgment, and full of love, and full of grace, and full of mercy. The whole package, not just the parts we like, but the whole thing. When we expose the world to that through who we are and through what we know, that's different than an unbeliever going, God, you suck. I actually get more out of that. Because at least, I mean, if we sang, like some of us need to be real, like get up and sing the song that's on our heart, which is, God, my bank account's empty, and I don't think you're ever going to show up, and I'm really kind of bummed out right now. But I still got a guitar in my hand and I still have a song in my heart. So I'm just going to sing to you. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like, yeah, I, 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 so it's like, I agree with both ends. I just feel like I get more out of the honesty, you know? And I think that's why I miss what I'm missing in the church. That's what I'm missing in art and in music in the church. I'm missing the authenticity that actually reveals you might be broken. (gasps) I wrote a song, uh, I had my guitar, I'd sing it for you, but it's broken. I just, the chorus goes, it sings, I am a murdering, lying, cheating, backstabbing thief. I killed my best friend. I killed him. I nailed him to a tree. I am a, an adulterous, envious, jealous, gossiping fiend. But the blood of my friend, the one that I killed, sets me free. I believe in the blood. I believe in the blood. I believe in the blood. It's like we just need to be reminded we are broken. And the person next to you who fell, that thing is still inside you. Does that make sense? You can't judge somebody else who fell because that same thing is in you. Paul, have you read, have you read Romans? I mean, Paul's like, I do the things I do not want to do because I don't want to do them, but I know what I'm supposed to do, but I can't do the things I want to do because the things that I don't, don't want to do are still inside of me. And I do do the things that I don't want to do. And I do the things that I do do because I don't know what I'm doing. Do do, you know? And it's like, he's, if Paul, Paul is struggling with his own flesh and realizing the nature of sin and the nature of the spirit is still at war inside of him, how much more so you and I, Hello? And we're not singing songs about it. We're busy singing songs about everything's great. Holy glory to God. It's all good. I'm happy all the time. I never get frustrated. Praise God. You, you all feel the same way, right? And we all go, yes, brother. Hallelujah. Welcome to church. Woo. <laughs> I'm a little sarcastic about it because it annoys the snot out of me. It just annoys the hell out of me. I'm so over it. I'm so over it. I don't know about you guys. I'm just over it. Just give me some honest, real people who are broken but love Jesus. And maybe they did get breakthrough in some areas. Thank God they got breakthrough in areas I don't have breakthrough in. Then sweet, their breakthrough helped me get breakthrough. And then we'll all get breakthrough together. Not because we're perfect, because we're imperfect and we're not afraid of our imperfections. What are you going to say? Questions? Sorry, go. Okay, let's go. Let's do it. First Corinthians 13. We'll go there because that's really, that's the, that's the, the tiller of the soil is first Corinthians 13. 
Like this, once we understand what real love looks like, we can actually start to cultivate it. But until we understand what it looks like, then we can't cultivate it. Does that make sense? Because what we'll end up doing is reaping a harvest of a bunch of, because see what happens is we end up harvesting a bunch of love we actually don't want. And we keep getting frustrated that the same thing keeps repeating, but it's because we have a bad model for what it's supposed to look like. So instead of burning the crop to the ground and retilling the soil, we just kind of keep replanting the same broken junk. And then when it harvests and there's fruit, we get frustrated. <laughs> How did this happen again? We keep planting the same seed. Does that make sense? So we have to get to a right model of what love actually looks like if we're ever going to get to cultivating it in our lives. And so 1 Corinthians 13 is uh, love is patient. You, we did that yesterday. The first statement, the reality that patience is not just about circumstance, but it's about individuals. It's about being patient with the individual that God has put right in front of your life right now. And my favorite verse on it outside of that verse is Psalm 46 verse 10, which is be still and know that I'm God, which is kind of an insane verse because it literally means, do, it literally says do nothing and you get something. But let me point it out to you this way. So if you've heard me preach, you've probably heard me say this, but, but a day, uh, the whole scripture is not about you. The whole of scripture has nothing to do with you. (laughs) The Bible, just so you know, is about God, not about you. We've made the Bible about us, but it's not about us. And if you need proof, it's really, really simple. Day one, Genesis one, know you. Day two, know you. Day three, no. Day four, uh uh-uh. Day five, Still not there. Day six, you show up at the end after monkeys. Just saying. You show up at the end, day six. You show up at the end of day six. And when you show up, your first job is nothing. Right? He says, welcome to planet earth. Man, you look alone. That's a bummer. Go back to sleep. Wake up. There's a woman there. Awesome. I tell people all the time, it's why guys love naps so much. The first time they wake up, God. Second time they wake up, hot naked chick. I think Adam was like, put me to sleep again. Let's see what happens. You know, like what comes next? You know, so that's not weird. We're going to talk about sex this week too. So don't worry about it because sex isn't weird and nakedness isn't weird. It says that before the fall, they were naked and What's the very first thing they noticed after they fell? That they were naked. And the devil has been playing that card ever since. He's tied sex to shame since the garden. And we've been living in it and giving sex over to the world and letting them define it for us. Instead of the people who know the God who created it. Sex is not shameful. There is not one thing shameful about sex. Not one thing. When it's put in the context of marriage, when it's put in the context of covenant, it's beautiful. But we let our kids hear about it from school. And our kids are, are the average age to being starting an addiction to pornography or looking at pornography is 10 years old. 10. 10 years old. The average, like the, the young age of like addiction setting in. Because see what happens is in your brain, the filter part that's up here. That allows you to go, that's not a good idea, isn't developed yet. But the part that says, I really like that and don't care about the cost, is developed first. Do you see when maturity sets in is when you know the filter. Does that make sense? So maturity sets in in the brain way after the triggers inside of your brain to get addicted. 
That's why we're supposed to talk about sex from a very young age to our children. Not a birds and the bees talk. Do you understand that I don't need to have a birds and the bees talk with my little five-year-old son? He notices. Okay? Hey, why does sister not have that? Oh, is that awkward for you? I'm sorry. You want me to start using terms? It's okay. Like, let's not make this weird. It's like the reality is, he goes, why do I have a penis and my sister doesn't? And I said, oh, it's super easy. Boys and girls are like puzzle pieces. And you know, you have to have the right puzzle piece to fit the right into the right puzzle piece. And guess what? Here's what's awesome. When mommies and daddies get married and the puzzle pieces come together, we get more puzzle pieces to make a picture, which is called a family. And he's like, all right, do we get ice cream tonight? It's not weird. We're supposed to help our kids talk about it and explore it and understand it because I get to create the safety for my children or else they're going to figure it out out there. Because guess what happens now when somebody comes up to them and goes, hey, yeah, I have have a penis. Because that's what happens, by the way. If you don't have kids, it's like the the thing. You know what I mean? It's like they talk about it because they don't know what it is. You know? So they're like, they talk about it. Little boys talk about it. But guess who's defining the conversation now? Oh, yeah. It's like my dad said it was like puzzle pieces. And when mommies and daddies get together, that's how they make a picture. They're defining the conversation now, not their friends. Does that make sense? And what happens is, is in the garden, you get this covenant relationship that God institutes. And it's not weird and it's not shameful. It's actually really beautiful. It's actually amazing. In the context of marriage, if you do understand, like, just one more thing on this little piece, because we're actually going to talk about it again later. But one more piece. We could actually end abortion, end STDs, end AIDS, empty every orphanage and empty foster care system on the planet, and all we have to do is three things, and we don't even need to vote on it. We don't need a government to do it. There's only three things. Don't have sex till you're married. When you get married, stay married to one person, and teach your kids to do the same thing. You just got rid of abortion because there's no unwanted children. You just got rid of STDs because there's no sex outside of marriage. You just got rid of most of AIDS, except for the little bit that's transfused by blood. But outside of that, most of AIDS is gone off the planet. And empty, every foster care system and orphanage is emptied in one generation because all those kids grow up and are adopted by families or grow up into adults. You didn't have to vote on it. It's not Republican. It's not Democrat. It's nothing. It's the word of God, but nobody wants to do it. God makes this so simple that any human being that's born could do it, but you actually have to choose sacrifice in order to get it. Because we think that being able to do whatever we want is more freedom than actually just choosing one thing for the rest of your life. No, you are not more free when you can date whoever you want and sleep with whoever you want. That is actually bondage, not freedom. Right? Why? Because you don't know who you're going to be with next week. And you don't know what's going to happen. There might, you do, do, is, oh, am I going to get pregnant? Is this going to happen? What's going to happen here? Oh my gosh, is this going to happen here? And all of that stuff is bondage that the enemy now rules over with your life. But me, I go home. And I have a wife and I have three kids. And I'm actually more free. Even though when they're running around in circles, I'm going to tie me up like they're little Indians or something. I, I mean, it doesn't feel like I'm free, but it's definitely more freedom. Do you see what I'm saying? The bondage comes off. And 
we're going to talk about that because we're going to talk about kingdom and the model of family. But patience, so then all of a sudden, the first thing that he asks you to do is after the, there's a man and a woman and God, he says, okay, welcome to day seven. What are we, and Adam's like, what are we going to do today? And God says, nothing. And he's like, okay, yeah, God, I get it. Super spiritual. That's awesome. We're going to just rest. I get it. No, no, no. Like, what are we going to do? And he says, no, nothing. You're going to do nothing. No, no, God, I get it. No, what are we going to do though? Like, what do we do? And he says, nothing. Why? Because I did all this without you. And when you're dead and gone, it'll keep going. You are not the center of this story. I am. See, we keep placing ourselves at the center of story of, of the story and build theology around us at the center, but we are not the center, and it's why our theology is continually screwed up. Because God and the priority of God is not at the center of our theological concerns. It's us. What do I do about my marriage? What do I do about my stuff? What do I do about this? What do I do about this? And we're going to the Bible like it's an answer book for our problems, and it's not. It's the story of God. Now, nobody wants to hear that because they want to find the answer to their problems. But that's how you actually get bad theology. You get bad theology by using the Bible to go answer your problems. The greatest problem you have, the greatest depravity in our generation is not divorce, homosexuality, pornography, any of these things. The greatest tragedy in our generation is the lack of the knowledge of God. If we were to know God and Christ Jesus whom he sent... And he becomes the center, everything changes. Your whole life changes. Well, then I'm not worried about my specific problem. I'm actually more concerned about how where I'm at is going to glorify God. I'm not worried about how to get out of this hard situation because I know that the word says every hard situation I get into, he's going to use to his glory. Does that make sense? I'm not, oh man, I'm not so stressed out anymore because I know that he actually bears the weight of my burdens and what I'm feeling right now is my flesh and not God so I can just lift it off of me, put it on God, let him carry it and I can move forward in confidence in Christ. Do you see how all this stuff just takes burdens off of us? We're so stressed out about how to do and what to do and all these things and God's like, just focus your eyes on me. Do you understand that if you keep looking at your feet, you're going to run into stuff? Right? If you were to walk down the street and you didn't look up, you just looked down at your feet, you're probably eventually going to run into something or someone's going to hit you with a car. But when you get your eyes off of yourself and you look forward and fix your eyes on Jesus, you can actually know where you're going, where you're headed, and he can actually direct you. That's what happens with our sin. We're teaching people, okay, get disciplined. Don't, don't, don't do that anymore. Don't do that anymore. Don't do that anymore. And we're fixing our eyes on our issues and on our problems. And we're staring at the ground, watching where we're walking, instead of fixing our eyes on Jesus. So that we can actually go somewhere and get healed. And he says, this is the way you do it. Rest. I'm not going to preach this long on every single one of these, but if we don't get patience, the rest of this thing is jacked up. If we think that we actually have to do a whole lot of work to figure this out, we're going to actually miss what God wants to do right in our midst because we're not doing what he's asking with rest, with peace, and with patience, and with endurance. Does that make sense? All right. Love is patient. Love is kind. (laughs) I love what William Barclay says. William Barclay says, so much of Christianity is good, but unkind. My wife puts it this way. I wish you would just be nice. 
Being nice gets you a long way. Just be nice. Do you know that one of the most original teachings that Jesus had is, is um, treat, do unto others as you would want done unto you, which simply means this. You have to be proactive, not responsive to the way that you're being treated. Does that make sense? It means you have to proactively treat somebody regardless of whether or not you know them, whether or not, it, whether or not they've treated you unkindly. You have the responsibility to treat others as you would want to be treated. That's kindness. Kindness is when you decide, well, I would like somebody to give me $20, so I guess I should just give somebody $20. I would really like it if somebody let me cut in line right now, if I was at the back. So I guess, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let them cut in line right here. You know what I'd really like? If somebody did da-da-da-da-da. Does that make sense? I mean, write down right now just something that you would like somebody to do for you. Just write it down. If somebody was to do something really nice for you, what would it be right now? Just right now. It could be the most cheesy little thing on the planet. What would you like somebody to do for you right now? If somebody was just to come up and do something for you, what would you like? Just write it down. Write it down. You know where this is going. Just write it down. <laughs> so here's your homework. Go do that for somebody else today. Whatever you wrote down, go do for somebody else. Now, some of you were like, I ain't writing something down because I know what he's going to say. But the truth is, you know what you do. Now, go do it. Just go do it for somebody. Does that make sense? Because that's what Jesus is saying here. If we were just kind to one another, people might actually understand that they should treat others. It's the whole pay it forward concept, just with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It's pay it forward with the Holy Spirit. That's really what it is. I'm going to do something nice for somebody else regardless of what I get out of it. I'm just going to be kind. And this is the only place in the whole Bible where this actual word exists, just so you know. When it says love is patient, love is kind, that word kind is the only place in the whole Bible where it actually exists. And it finds its roots in the same Greek word as easy. It's actually an extension of the Greek word easy, which means this. Love is patient, love is easy. We're making everything so ridiculously difficult, we barely get to enjoy most of our lives. We're so busy being stressed out over what's going to happen next, we can't even just enjoy the day that we have. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has worries of its own. In fact, uh, I love Philip II. Um, he was a devout religious man, like this guy, this one of these kings. He was just an amazing religious man. And amazing. He was, like, if you looked at his life, you'd be like, oh, he was devout. Went to church all the time. Studied the word. Did a lot for the church. But he was also the one who started the Spanish Inquisition and murdered tons of Jews and Muslims. But he was really devout. But it just sounds a lot nicer when we go, I go to church every Sunday. I go to Bible study. I have my quiet time every day. I went on DTS and I went out on a mission field, but I still treat everybody like I'm a jerk, like they're a jerk. I just still treat everybody poorly. Well, then you don't have love in you. You have all the right stuff, just no love. Love does not envy. That's the next one. Or, I mean, actually, the other one that I could put is kindness can only be birthed in an atmosphere of complete freedom. Control destroys kindness because selfishness can only find joy in the lifting up of self. Does that make sense? It's, it's Romans 2.4. Kindness leads to repentance. The kindness of God is why you signed up for repentance. Because you knew that he was good enough. He was kind enough to take care of you at your most weak and broken moment. And so you signed up and said yes. Does that make sense? 
Love does not envy. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. Envy, let me, let me say this. Envy is different than jealousy. <laughs> envy is a lot different than jealousy. Jealousy says this. Jealousy says, I don't like that you have that. Envy says, I want to destroy that so that neither of us can have it. It's, it's the root of, well, if, you, if I can't have it, no one will. That's where the root of it comes from. If I can't have it, nobody's getting it. I want it destroyed or I want it gone. That's envy. Envy has its roots in anger. And it says that, and also look, envy says this. Envy, envy is also the thing that gets us to not, like coming out of, of patience and kindness, you get to envy because envy just is completely unsatisfied with where it is. And it looks at everybody else and says, I wish I had what they had. I wish I had what they had. I want what they had so bad. It makes me angry and I want to get rid of it so that nobody else has it. And the problem is what we need to do is begin to learn how to grow where we're planted. My wife says that all the time. Like that's her, her phrase. Just learn to grow where you're planted. Because someone who can grow wherever they're planted, God can actually use them. God can actually move in them. Because they're not concerned about the place where they are. They just want to grow wherever they are. And when me and my wife were going through all of our stuff, that's what she continually said. This is what I chose. This is my family. And instead of being frustrated with where I'm at, I'm going to learn how to grow in the midst of this. It's kind of like driving through all the volcanic rock and then you see that one little flower or that little tree that grew out of the midst of it. Who, that, it's recognizable because of its surroundings. Does that make sense? It's recognizable because it stands out over all the lava rock. That tree with its beautiful little flowers stands out. And if you want to stand out, everybody's life looks like all that volcanic rock. It's just very few people decide to stand out in the midst of it. And if you learn to grow where you're planted, God will use, God will show you off to the planet and go, that's what it looks like. See that right there in the midst of all their crap? They're stoked. They're not faking it. They're still declaring this hurts, but they actually have found me in the midst of it. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Learning, <laughs> learning to listen is to love. Boasting, really, this is about if you want to love, you need to know two words. And they're very, very important, so write them down. If you want to love, these two words you need to know. Shut up. Just write it down really big, all capitals. Shut up. Because most of us are waiting for somebody to finish their sentence so that we could say something else. We are plan While somebody else is talking to us, we're planning what we're going to say next. And we have barely heard what they're saying to us because we're busy thinking about what we're going to say in response. Just shut up. I've watched so many people. It's like they get, they have testimony wars. Somebody gives a testimony and the next person you can see it on their face. Oh, my testimony is so much better than yours. I can't wait till you shut your mouth and I will give you a better testimony. You saw 20 people saved. I was in another country and I saw a thousand people come to the Lord and 50 people healed. Huh? Where are you at now? And that's boasting. See, when real love is there, I don't care if I have a better story. I'm not going to share it because my priority is to make you feel loved. So I'll actually have a better story and I won't share it. I just want you to know that I love your story. I don't care if you came out to me and say you got two people healed. And I know in the back of my head, I saw 50 last week. And I'm just going to go, you saw what? Oh my God, that's amazing. Wow. And then you shut up. You don't have to share yours. Love knows how to shut its mouth. 
So many times, I, well, we're going to get to it. Because the next one, yeah, I have a bunch of stuff on that boasting one. Because it's just, boasting is essentially, it's, there is a boasting that's good. There's a boast in the Lord where you and your heart are excited about what the Lord's doing. But that's completely different than going ahead and trying to trump everybody's testimony. And trump everyone else. Does that make sense? I kind of... I actually don't want to distract too much from that, but know that in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 17, there is a holy boasting where God is glorified. And where we say, God, we just boast in you together. Like as a corporate body, we just enjoy that God, God and God alone is awesome. And here's all the stuff that he's done. And we have these corporate times and it's beautiful and wonderful. But I just want to say that just so you know, it's there. And the one who has found love will only boast in the love that they, the one who has really found love, doesn't boast in what they found because they know that it came to them freely and without their doing. Someone who's really found love doesn't have to boast about it because they know they have nothing to do with it. Does that make sense? It means that like at the end of the day, I didn't do anything to deserve love. I just get it. Love is not proud. I want to live to make others great. Like, who wants to exist for the sole purpose of making others awesome? That's what love looks like. Love says, I'm not interested if I become great. I just want to make sure the people around me become great. That's really what I'm concerned with. Love allows you to call out your, the identity in others without any cost to your identity. See, most people don't call out the greatness in others because they're so afraid if somebody else is better than them, then they lose their identity. And I've seen so many people who are afraid of others being great around them that they actually never become great themselves. See, great people surround themselves with great people and let them become great. I'm going to talk about it more when we talk about kingdom, but the, I don't know. But the king, the way that it works is: see, we Jesus existed in a bottom-up model, not a top-down. Jesus was not at the top of the pyramid scheme hoping to make everybody below him awesome. No, he was the king of kings, lord of lords, and he was born in a manger. So that way he could say to the rest of the world, trust me, I was born in a manger and gave up my godhood to come down to earth and rescue you. My job is to lift everybody else around me up. But we have this top down model in the church, this business model that says, as long as I'm at the top, I get to lord over everybody else. Jesus gets at the bottom as a servant of all and lifts everybody else up into their greatness. That destroys pride when you recognize that God himself was born in a manger. The creator of the universe had no place to rest his head. He gets down in the muck and the mire. Maybe you like it better in creation. In creation, your God could have chosen anything to make you and he chose dirt. And it says that he got down in the dirt and breathed breath into the nostrils of man. Isn't that what it says? The thing is, your God did not just get down in the dirt and then just pile up a little pile of mud and then blow on it. Your God, it says, in his creative nature, he actually formed a man. He actually formed a little dirt man. How do we know that? Number one, God's creative. Number two, it says he formed him. Number three, it says he breathed in his nostrils and a pile of dirt doesn't have nostrils. Your God gets down in the dirt and the muck and the mire with you and breathes his breath into you. So every dead place that looks like dirt comes alive with the breath of God. And we're so busy convincing everybody that we're great and we should be a leader. And God goes, no, I'm actually so convinced of my identity. I can get down in the mud and I won't lose my identity. 
I can actually be the king of kings and lord of lords and get down into the dirt and I won't lose who I am because I know who I am to my core. So when I get down in the mud, everyone will still see me as God because they know they'll see it around me. And we're so convinced that if we lift everybody else up above us, we'll lose our greatness. No, you won't. God actually says that's how you find real greatness is by serving others and lifting them up beyond you. But pride will not allow you to do that. Pride will kill that every single time because somebody gets clapped and you wanted the applause, you will shut them down and you'll call it God. Well, brother, I just didn't want you, you know, I feel like you have some stuff to learn and maybe we should go through another course or do this thing. No, you're awesome. You deserve the applause. Keep going. Nobody recognizes you anymore. Perfect. You did a really good job. Nobody knows you had anything to do with it. Even better. You're winning and you're, you're getting awards in heaven that nobody else can take. Your treasures are being stored up in places. Nobody else can steal them. Just shut your mouth and let them get applauded. Love, uh, in Philippians 2, 3, love always considers others more important than itself. Can you hear that? Love always considers others more important than itself. <laughs> this stuff will fry your freaking brain. This, I mean, come on now. We've just hit the first five or six, and this is different than anybody else has ever lived. I mean, can I, I just want to find one person who wants to live like this. If we can get a few people that are like, sign me up for that. Oh, you want me to sign up for death? Oh, you want me to sign up to lay my life down so other people can be great and they forget about me? Yeah, I want you to do that. Yes, please do that. Yes, please let God burn pride out of your life so that he, because he opposes the proud. And gives grace to the humble. Is that, what the, is that not what the Bible says? Yet we're so worried about what other people think about us. That is pride. Yeah. Let him kill it in you. Especially musicians. It's like, oh my God, he might be more talented than me. Better make sure I practice harder so I can prove everybody else how great I am. No. Let them be great. You go practice because you want to do what you're doing unto the Lord. Not to show other people how awesome you are. Do you see the difference? There's a difference there. doesn't mean we don't practice or don't do anything. It means we're doing a whole heck of a lot, but we don't care if anybody notices because we're not doing it for them. Because when I have that inside of me, no matter where I end up, they'll see God in me. Love is not rude. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud and it is not rude. (laughs) Love comes with a gentleness and sensitivity. Gentleness and sensitivity are not descriptions of weakness. They're signs of courage. When you're not afraid to expose the tenderness of your own heart, male or female, the tenderness and the love in your own heart, and you're not afraid to expose it for the world to see, because everybody has it in them. Everybody has it in them. I don't care how strong and how manly and how awesome and how cool you really are. That doesn't mean you don't have sensitivity. (laughs) If you don't have sensitivity, then you've actually shut God out. Sensitivity and gentleness is actually a requirement for humility. Right information, let me say it this way. Right information does not make it truth. (laughs) And sometimes withholding right information can be a greater act of love than by sharing what you know. See, most people, what they want to do is be like, well, brother, um, I uh, just wanted, I got to speak the truth. I got to speak the truth. No, what you want to do is be rude and you want to be obnoxious is what you want to do. We're like, you know, I just can't help it. I got to share it. I just speak my mind. No, you're rude is what you are. Don't speak your mind. Shut your mouth. 
Now, if there's sin or there's something like that, do you understand that's not what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about people hurting one another. I'm not talking about any of these massive things. I'm talking about a lifestyle where I just say whatever I feel. Well, yeah, but you're hurting everyone around you because you're rude. It goes back to what I said earlier. Just shut your mouth. Now, let me say it this way even stronger because maybe that's not making sense. Sarcasm is a passive-aggressive form of rudeness. And sarcasm in the church should not be tolerated. Sarcasm is literally a sign of insecurity. Sarcasm is the sign of insecurity in a human heart. Sarcasm means I will joke about you passive aggressively. Oh, I'm just kidding. Don't worry. By the way, the Bible addresses it. It's called coarse joking. It says we're not supposed to receive it or accept it as believers. If you want to look it up, you can, coarse joking. But the thing is, is that we should not accept sarcasm as a way of talking to one another. We shouldn't do it. It is a passive-aggressive form of being rude to one another. And we make agreement with it by joking about it and going, oh, he's just kidding. She's just kidding. It's just a part of her personality. Oh, aren't they funny? No, I'm not going to laugh at it because what you just said was mean. And we keep going after it and letting people do it and treating us that way. Oh, it's just they're being funny. Don't worry about it. Don't, they're just being funny. No, I won't accept it. You being sarcastic and rude and mean, I'm not going to accept it or receive it because it's not from the Spirit of God. Was that direct enough? <laughs> because I think actually it really is. It hurts people. Now they may not say that hurts me because they want to laugh with everybody else. But at the end of the day, they want to go, that hurts. You were being sarcastic. I get it. You're trying to be funny, but that hurt me. And the person saying it is actually, they're actually manifesting insecurity. And they definitely don't want to address that. So to cover up my insecurity, I'll make fun of you. I'll be just sarcastic and joking, but I actually inside I'm being insecure and I can be funny. So that way nobody will pay attention to my insecurities. Does that make sense? Sorry if I came off harsh, but I, we just can't afford to model that to the world. Does that make sense? We cannot talk to people like, we cannot talk to one another like that because people on the outside who know their insecurity, if they hear us talk like that, they do not want to come and join us because they feel like they're going to, you're going to say the same thing to them. Does that make sense? Because they know, they know, they watch you do it and they're like, Ooh, I don't want to be a part of that. Love is not self-seeking. True love. Love is not self-seeking. True love cannot be beaten, can be beaten, scorned, mocked, ridiculed, abandoned, rejected, and still be unmoved because it is not dependent on being understood or even being received. Love is not self-seeking means this. I'm not telling you I love you to hear and I love you in return. I love you regardless. Does that make sense? Most of us say I love you because we're like, I love you. Please say it back. That's not actually love. That's actually selfishness trying to manifest itself to get a pat on the back. Do you see the difference? Because people can tell the difference. I'm giving you, I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell them how great they are. Why? Because I want to hear how great I am. (laughs) So I'm going to go and encourage them. Hopefully they'll do the same thing for me. What happens when you go, I love you. And they go, thanks. Oh, um, maybe I don't love you. No, you do love them. (laughs) 
Does that make sense? No, if my wife, I told you yesterday, if my wife cheated on me, left, bailed on the marriage, I would chase her down. She doesn't have to say, I love you. And I'm actually more convinced of that now than I am ever in my life because I'm watching so many people. Dude, I am talking to people in marriages whose marriages are falling apart and their text messages are concerned with their wife will not have sex with them. Are you committed to a marriage if you get sex never again in your entire marriage? Are you still in? These are real questions you have to think through. Does that make sense? You have to think this stuff through. Am I going to love you until my, until death do us part, regardless of what happens, regardless of what happens in our marriage, regardless of what happens in our friendship, regardless of how this goes down. Am I going to say yes to you? Because that's what Jesus does for me every single day. Jesus isn't saying, I love you so that he can get an, I love you in return. He's saying it every single day, regardless of whether or not you say it back to him. Want me to prove it? It's biblical. It says this. Jesus Christ went to the cross yet while we were still sinners. Isn't that the passage? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is that saying? Even while you were busy rejecting him, he said yes to you and went to the cross for you. That's the model that he wants you to model. He wants you to say while people are spitting and scorning you, you love them regardless of if you you get a a love in return. You want to reach unreached people groups? That's what you're signing up for. If you're going to, if you dare say you're going to reach unreached people groups, you are going there to say, I love you to people who are not going to say, I love you back. And it's, and if it's fake, they'll know it and they'll see right through it. If you cannot, and the thing is, you cannot manifest that kind of love if you've never experienced that kind of love. I just, I, whenever I start talking about this, I get, I just, in my own heart, I'm like, God, I, I like, can you imagine if we actually did this stuff? I mean, seriously, we're, we're halfway through the list. We're halfway through. And if we just did the first eight, we, do you understand how that changes the planet? And number one, it changes the church. If we start loving like this and living like this, the cost of living like this is so high because you're saying, even if I get rejected the rest of my life, not the rest of the week, not the rest of the day, the rest of my life, if I'm rejected, spit on, scorned, pushed away, I'm not going to enter into depression. I'm going to actually enter into exaltation. Because I'm not, my life is not moved by what you think about me. Does that make sense? I came here to give you a word. I came here to share this stuff. I don't care if you do anything with it. I'm going to do something with this. I'm not giving you this message because it's not something I, I'm sure hope you guys do it. I really want to give you a really good message and hopefully you can write it down in your notebooks and we can talk about it maybe in a couple days. No, if you do this, the world changes. And I'm going to do it with or without you. That's, this is what I'm committing my life to. I'm trying to figure this out. Not in some condemning, oh, I'm just, I suck so bad, I can't do it. No, I'm going to go after this thing with prayer and worship, and I'm going to get this. Because God says it's possible. He says it's possible. That I can actually love in an unselfish, unmovable way, so that the world sees God when they see me. And if love covers a multitude of sins, then I know that when they see this kind of love, their lives are going to be transformed in a moment.
That's why Jesus says, the, the world will know you, my, you're my disciples when you love one another. Not when you preach a really good message or go on a really good trip. He says, when you love one another. He knew that the greatest concern of, of the future of the church was that if we could just get along. That the future of the church and the evangelization of the world was dependent on whether or not we could figure out how to actually love one another. That's what Jesus knew. That's why he told us out of anything he could have said in that sentence, the world will know you're my disciples when. And he could have filled in anything, right? He could have filled in signs and wonders, power, the cross, any of this stuff. He could have filled anything he wanted in. And he said, the world will actually know when the people who follow me get along. Isn't that what happened in Luke 9 through 11? See, he knew that because he experienced it. Luke 9 through 11, in Luke 9, Jesus sends out the 12 and says, hey, go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. Even though I've never taught you how to do that and I've never modeled it for you, I want you to go do it. And by the way, don't take any money. Good luck. They go, come back, say it was awesome. But the next thing that happens is a dude shows up with his kid and says, hey, your disciples came and prayed for him, my son, but he didn't get healed. And they all looked at Judas and said, that was Judas's trip. I didn't have anything to do with that one. And they turn around and Jesus says, this kind can only come out with prayer and fasting. Lays his hands on him. Doesn't pray or fast because he had already prayed and fasted. He didn't have to pray and fast then because he already had a lifestyle of it behind him. So all he had to do was turn and manifest it in that moment. Because when you have a lifestyle of something, you don't have to prepare. Somebody asked me once, how do you prepare to speak? I said, I just try to get there on time. Because if I have to prepare to speak, I shouldn't be speaking. If I have to prepare to lead worship, I should not be leading worship. Because those things should come out of a lifestyle that I'm already trying to manifest. And then I'm just sharing with you what I'm trying to manifest in my own life. Yeah, sure. Maybe I put together a few notes because I'm like, well, I'm kind of unorganized and I have 45 journals. And it would be boring for you to watch me flip through my journals. That would probably be pretty boring. So I try to keep them on a regular basis, though. If you look, I have, I, uh, let's see, I have just a little folder called messages. And I have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 25. I have 24 messages I could preach to you right now at any given time because these are what my life is about. I don't have to come here prepared. I just click on my iPad and it shows up because I've been preparing for a lifetime. Does that make sense? And so now I can go wherever God wants to go. That's why I kind of go on these rabbit trails for you because those are the things in my heart. Does that make sense? And if we would just model this stuff, the world would look at us and go, that's, I want that. Sign me up for that. That's what I want. All right. It's 10, 18. We take a break right now. Yeah. Could we go 10.15 to 10.30 for a break normally or whatever? Okay. I don't know. Whatever. I don't know what I'm doing. But love is not self-seeking. Let me give you a few verses that you can look up and see that I'm not just uh, jacking you up. Okay. John 3.16. First John 4.8. God is love. Romans 5.8. Galatians 2.20. Romans 8, 37 through 39. Sing it, girl. You go for it. Just give me some Mandy Moore right now. I just want to just let it go. Sorry. First John 3, 1. 
Uh, Romans 8, 37 through 39. 1 John 3, 1. John 15, 13 through 14. Romans 12, 9. Romans 13, 10. And so we'll stop halfway through. And then we'll keep going. All right? Amen, amen. All right, what questions do you guys have from my first little ranting and raving? Questions, thoughts, concerns about my salvation? Anything in between? What are you guys thinking about? Go for it. Yes. Just because you were born in a place that accepts it doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. That's ir- it's irrelevant information. Does that make sense? Just because you were born somewhere. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to India and tell them you were born Hindu. So really it's okay to be Hindu. It's the same thing. You, you, you model the opposite. So you model, you just don't accept it. Just don't receive it. You don't laugh at it. And so as soon as, as soon as they do it, you just don't laugh. And they're like, ha ha. Wasn't that funny? And you're like, no, I just, I, I don't, I don't find that funny anymore. Because to me, it, it just seems like it's harsh. Well, no, my friends, then they'll like cast me out. Sweet. They cast out Jesus too. And he wasn't bummed. He just wasn't bummed about it. You know what I'm saying? Like the same, it, look, you want me to get really way over on that end? Like, just because drinking is acceptable somewhere doesn't mean that it's okay. If you want me to push a lot of buttons. Because if it causes somebody else to get drunk, then you shouldn't be doing it anyway. Does that make sense? No, but I'm from a European country where they drink beer like they drink coffee. Yeah, but if you're from Ireland and they drink beer like they do coffee and they're drunk a lot. So you having one beer gives them permission to have 15. So you should have zero because then you're the standard. See, what we're doing is saying, well, no, I'm trying to fit in. No, you were never supposed to fit in. You were supposed to stand out. How can you change a world that you're in love with? Does that make sense? I mean, I could poke at that stuff all day long, but it, like, does that make sense? Go ahead. Nope. No, because at the end of the day, let me put it this way. It's the same thing with cigarettes. One, pe- one drink of alcohol inside of your body. Okay, let me go, let me go straight to scripture. So we'll, we'll bypass my idea and go to this. It says that John never tasted one drink and he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was born. Do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit or do you want to be filled with alcohol? It's up to you. That's my opinion on it. And I'm really harsh about it because of this reason. Because I know so many people who in the name of grace are having one drink and saying it's okay. But I've sat at a lot of tables where their one drink gave somebody else permission to have four. And in the name of responsibility, your one drink gave permission to somebody else who you didn't even know had alcoholism in their family line. And you gave them permission. Because you don't know the history. And to say you do is actually arrogant. Because you don't. 
And I've sat with ministers. Now, I'm, I'm harsh on this, and I like a drink. I'm just, let me be really real with you. Now that we've hit this, <laughs> let me just say it this way. For me. For me, it looks like this. I want more than what the world has to offer me. And just because the world says it's okay that I have one drink does not mean that it's okay. Just because I like it does not make it okay. And for me, I want to set a higher standard than my peers. Not because I'm more religious than them or more faithful than them, but because I want to be different. And if me not having one drink, even though I like it, what I do, I'm just telling you I do. I love beer. I just do. But I haven't had one in a very long time because I don't have permission to do it because I've chosen something else. I'm sorry. Like, that's for me. Now, if you want to... You want to do something else? Like if I, that's, there's no judgment on my end. I just feel like I want to present something different. And I feel like every time it comes up, it becomes this, why are we arguing to have a drink? That's what I want to ask. Does that make sense? Why are we arguing to do things that the world is doing in excess when we have a choice? When, it, when your Bible says, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Like he's literally telling you that, the, that wine is actually a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's telling you. That being, having wine in your body is actually a counterfeit of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in your body. So which one do you want? And I'll tell you this, just from my experience. I've, tra- I've like drank. I've had like one drink. I'll hang out. We'll have a beer with people, whatever. I know that in my life, the moment I said no to it a while ago, that I've actually seen my prophetic words get stronger and stronger and stronger the farther I am away from that period of time. That's... I have more clarity and I have, I know, because here's why I, entertainment is a counterfeit for encounter. The moment you go, I just need a drink. You're in the wrong. The moment you go, I just need a break to go see a movie. You've created an idol. Well, I just need a break. Then go get God. Well, no, I just need a break. Well, then you don't really, you don't actually serve God yet. You actually don't know him yet. You actually haven't met him. If you need a break from him, you haven't met him. Do you see what I'm saying? Because it sounds, does that say, <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, so I, I'm making very large statements, but I, I will let you. <laughs> My point is simply, we are so attracted to the world that we're not actually trying to be holy. We're just trying to fit in and then calling it evangelism. <laughs> sorry, but I'm not sorry, but I'm sorry. Does that, like, and I'm saying, like, dude, if you're like, no, the Lord's told me it's cool, cool. Like, I'm not going to argue with what the Lord, you feel like the Lord's told you. I'm more just trying to present something else. I'm just saying that there's a lot of times where we're like, I just need to, I just need a break. I just need to go and relax. No, what you should do in that moment is go get God and watch everything change. The moment you in your heart go, I need a break. I got to do something else. And you don't turn to God. You are creating idols in your life. Does that make sense? Because I've heard so many Christians, they're like, that are well-meaning, loving people. That's why I guess I'm so strong with the drinking thing. Because I've watched so many people go, man, I just need a break. I'm just going to get a drink. We're just going to go hang out. It's cool. And I'm like, that just sounds yucky to me. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? And it's hard for this. Let me just say this to you because I've been wanting to prophesy over you anyway. But like, there... you're a leader of leaders, man. Everyone looks to you. You have a different standard in your life. 
That's why I'm glad it came up this way because you can, you can do whatever you want because there's a grace on your life to get away with it. There really is. There's just such a favor on your life. You would, it's like you're, I feel like you're a lot like me in that sense. It's like you like, you like, you know, you stab someone and everybody goes, it wasn't Jake's fault. He was just, it was just, it was a crazy moment. It's, it wasn't Jake. It was somebody else. You know what I mean? And it's like, you have that favor on your life where it's like, you really can get away with anything. But that favor, like, I feel like you're the leader of leaders that everyone's looking to for direction. You're, they're looking to you and like going like, what is he going to do? Cause that's cool. You know? And so for you, you can get away with whatever you want, you know? And as a leader though, you get to make the final choice too. And I think the, 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 the cool part for you is that at the end of the day, you want holiness so bad. <laughs> There's a rending in your heart that's happening, you know? Right, do you do design? Do you design stuff? Like design work? Like do you draw or something? You draw, right? Doodle? Is that what it is? I see you doodling. I saw like your doodles and the Lord said they're actually logos for companies. Like you're a, like you're, you, you actually have design and like a business in you like to create, um, what's that word for that? What's the, um, not graphic design, but what is that when you create, uh, like when you create a whole package of design and logos and stuff, uh, corporate identity. So you're like, God, I feel like there's something on you to create corporate identities, like the Nike swoosh, like God's downloaded, like going to download to you like images that will actually represent entire corporations that you get paid royalties on for years to come kind of thing. Like, and that little creative spark that's inside of you is, it's going to make you, it's going to be your job. That's finances for you. I think that there's finances there for you. I mean, I don't know what kind of finances, but I feel like there's finances there for you. Like that's a, a way for you to make money, like to, to support your Jesus habit, you know, like, and, um, and I think, you're going to, you have a movement on your life. You have a move of God planned for you. You really do. And you've, you've known it for a long time. You've had daydreams about you standing in front of thousands of people and it's not arrogance and it's not pride. It actually is real. It's the Lord. It's the Holy spirit speaking to you. Like you're seeing it over and over and over again. And you're actually concerned whether or not this is me or God, because you know, you can easily make it about you. Because you're a dynamic, charismatic personality. It's just who you are. And God said, no, that's actually me. It's that Moses anointing to lead a generation into the promised land. It really is. But I see, like, the design work that's coming with it will actually, the art that's going to come with it, people will come to you and go, did you create all the artwork that went along with this too? And then you'll be able to hand off chunks of it and really run a business and a ministry at the same time. You got a really good heart, man. You're super tender. You're strong. You're charismatic, but you're tender. You're really tender. And I think that's actually one of the reasons that this stuff concerns you because you love people's hearts so much. You just want them to know that they're loved and you just want to be with them wherever they're at. You know, what was your name again? Scott. Lord, we pray for Scott right now in Jesus name. We lift him up. And we just thank you that Scott is a man after your own heart. That he's Davidic in nature. He's creative. Oh, man. The love of the Father for Scott. You love him so much as a son.
You love his passion and his zeal for you. That he's not going to take no for an answer. So we bless him with the Father's love right now in Jesus' name. Amen. And what was your name? You asked the first question, right? What was your name? What? Vagar? Nice. It's like the manliest name of all time. (laughs) Just like a warrior name. Yes, I made my own sword. I am Vagar. (laughs) I take on entire countries by myself. Lord, we just bless him right now. I just, I mean, I do. Even in saying that, I feel like there's this warrior spirit that's been beaten down in you and that the Lord wants to resurrect. You know, like, I feel like there's this thing that's just been pushed down and pushed on and pushed on. And there's like this thing that's in you that was like, I want to go to war, but it's been almost belittled. I don't know if that makes sense. Like it's, it's just been belittled a little bit. Like, Oh, calm down for so long that it's like, God wants to resurrect it in this moment. Like he wants to resurrect the warrior spirit that's inside of you. Cause it's what you were made for. You were made for war. It's, it's just what you were wired up for. Like you can't get away from it. Yeah. There's the promise of God is yet to be fulfilled in your life. Like, there's some promises that you got from God that's going to take war to go get, you know? Because there are some promises that God hands to you, and there's some promises that he says, come and get. And right now, he's telling you, come and get. And you know it, and it's why you're here, and you're chasing him down. But a lot of it has to do with resurrecting that warrior spirit that's inside of you. And it's awesome. It's amazing. What was your name sitting right in front of him? Selena. Selena. Did I pray for you already? Good. Keep going. (laughs) You're going to, you can't escape this stuff, girl. He's going to chase you down. He is so after you right now. I definitely can recognize when he like veils someone and I'm like, I think I've prayed for you, but I don't remember. It's like just that reminder that you can't get rid of this thing. So sorry. In, so in the midst of the, so this isn't, so me talking about the drinking stuff or any of that stuff that's like permission granted. It's like, for me, what it ends up being is it's not about drinking. It's not about the stuff. That's not what it's about. It's not about how much are you allowed to drink just as much as it's not about how, how far are you allowed to go with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Those, those questions are irrelevant when the question becomes, how close can I get to God? And what do I have to remove in order to get closer to him? The question has to be, how holy can I be? How set apart from the world can I be? And I don't like people just justifying it based on like their position or their family or what they've experienced because the Bible isn't justified by those means. It's justified by how close can I get to God? Does that make sense? It's, that's a lot to say. I mean, we could unpack that for a while because I think people are really concerned about how this looks. But for me, it's, I've just found it's easier just to say no, (laughs) you know, and just draw a line in the sand and just say, I I just can't do certain things that other people are allowed to do as a leader. I'm just not allowed. Some people can do it and it's fine. The crazy part is, is let me just say it this way. Don't base your life around somebody else that has revelation. Like don't idolize people 
Go after God. Does that make sense? Because what we end up doing is going, well, I know so-and-so, they're a major speaker, and they've got a wine collection and drink wine every night with their dinner. Well, congratulations, whoop ding dong for them. That's, that doesn't really mean anything for you. That's them. What is God doing with you? And we're so worried about basing our lives off of what somebody else is doing instead of going to the Bible and saying, what does God say for me? Because you also may know that they drink wine, but you don't know what happened to them 10 years ago that you don't want. Does that make sense? So forget basing your life on what somebody else is doing. Go to the word and say, God, what are you doing with me? That should be the standard, you know, and then figure it out from there. If the Lord tells you something different than he told me, good. Congratulations. Awesome. Does that make sense? Okay. What else? A couple more questions. Anything else? Go ahead. Um, actually, there's no proof that he drank wine. He just said, you, can, you are accusing me of drinking wine. It's called new wine, and it would have been totally different. It's like a really strong grape juice. It wouldn't have been the same. People try to convince people that it's like, no, Jesus drank wine at the Last Supper. He made wine at the, uh, at the wedding, but they didn't drink it. It doesn't say Jesus then popped a cap and had a great big old glass. You know what I mean? In fact, it actually would have said more about Jesus if he made the wine and didn't drink it. Does that make sense? And so there's no proof that any of that actually took place. That the fact that he did have a glass, like there was grape juice on the table. Okay, and understand this. See, because we don't understand the culture. The culture is this. They had to ferment the grape juice in order to keep it from spoiling so that they could make it until next harvest, not so that they could get drunk. Even the pagans were upset at people who drank too much. That's actually biblical. Culturally, though, what we don't understand is they're not fermenting stuff so that they can all get blasted later. (laughs) Because I need to pop it open and have a glass of wine with dinner. No, they stored it that way so that they could keep it until the next harvest. Does that make sense? So new wine is completely different than strong drink. There's two phrases in your Bible. New wine, strong drink. New wine is probably what Jesus had at the table, which essentially is... Grape juice in storage, not wine who's been fermented for 10, 20 years in the same fermentation that they're using today to make wine. You know, it's completely different. Strong drink is something else. That was like hard liquor to them. You know what I mean? That was grape juice that's either been super fermented or other strong drinks that they got their hands on, which we don't really need to go into. But culturally, it was different. So it's just like, essentially, it's like a old grape juice. Not fermented, but it'd be older grape juice. Not delicious, actually. As from what I understand, because <laughs> I was concerned. These are stuff that I looked into. Please look it up yourself. Please do your homework on that stuff. Look into it because you'll find some stuff that culturally we, we, you probably haven't seen before, you know, because there's way different when it says wine in your Bible, they're describing something completely different than what you and I know as wine. Does that make sense? Food storage was just different. Is that right? Does that make sense? Does that help a little bit? But do look it up. I'm telling you, like, go search it out. Because there actually is those, because the couple places that people usually go is they go to Jesus making wine. And they usually go to Jesus came, where Jesus says, the son of man comes uh, eating and drinking and you call him a glutton. John the Baptist comes neither eating nor drinking and you call him a, a demonic or whatever, basically. So, so that's where that, those are the kind of passages people really use for like, see, we're allowed to. Jesus came eating and drinking, but he actually wasn't really talking about drinking wine in that passage. He was actually just talking about eating and drinking because John fasted so much. <laughs> 
But nobody does their homework enough. They're just trying to justify their drinking. So just do your homework and then we can talk about it, you know? I love this stuff. <laughs> the, the easiest way for me is simply to say this. Do something that really moves your heart. And if it moves, like I'm talking about something that actually draws you closer to God. Are you making anything that draws you personally closer to God? If it's drawing you closer to God, then you will draw other people into that experience. That's why when I sing stuff, I'm only going to, I don't really sing a lot of cover songs. Because the only cover songs, like worship songs that I'll sing, I could probably give you a list of maybe 10, you know. And the reason I don't is because I want to know that they've moved my heart. Because if they don't move my heart, they're not going to move anybody else's. I just don't want to sing them because they're in the right key or they're a little upbeat. So let's get an upbeat song in there. No, I'll just sing a whole, if that's what's moving my heart right then, that's what I'm going to do. And if I don't have anything that's moving my heart, you're just going to hear me ramble on like I did in that room. Like, I'm just going to ramble on. Like, I made up all that, you know, prodigal son stuff. I'm just making it up as I go because I don't, I don't really have anything to say. This is what I feel like God sang, so let's just sing about it. But it, you guys noticed it didn't rhyme. There was no rhythmic patterns. It was just kind of me rambling, and I just made it all up. You know? So that's what I'd say. That's what art should be. That's really art. Like, does it move my heart? Like, am I singing this because I'm convicted? Am I singing this because it makes me come alive? And if it doesn't, don't do it. Just wait. And what happens is we try to convince ourselves we've got to do it. You know what I mean? Like, we've got to make something. And God's like, well, just wait. I'll give you something. Just learn how to wait. That's the patience part. You know? So if you don't have anything, then don't say anything. No, you don't understand. I have to lead worship. I'm scheduled to lead today. Well, then maybe God is saying, shut up. So what do I do? Oh, good. Just play one chord and see where it goes. So what songs are we playing today? I don't know. I really feel nothing from the Lord. Does anybody else have anything? Well, I woke up with this song on my heart. Let's go there and see what happens. But we have to fill an hour. What are we going to do? One song for an hour? Yes. If that's what God's doing, then yes. Why are we so worried? See how it becomes a performance so easily? Because we feel like we have to fill a certain amount of time. We feel like we have to sing a certain way. We have to play a type of song. We have to have a kind of, you know what I'm saying? It's like, that to me is all just a waste of time. If God's not in it, then let's stop. John Wimber was great at that from the Vineyard Movement. John Wimber was known for getting up on the stage. Like there's a couple times he get up on stage and go after worship and go, well, the anointing ain't here today. So the meeting's over and let's all get some pie. That was it. Amen walk off the stage and we'd be like oh my god that's terrible but it's like why is that terrible if you can't sense anything that's going on yeah maybe it did have to do with you like this passage (laughs) some people quote this smith wigglesworth is saying if god's not going to move then i'm going to make him move i'm sorry that's bad theology and smith wigglesworth was not known for being a great theologian so probably you shouldn't quote him He was actually a terrible theologian, horrible theology. No, you don't make God move. What you do is go, God, are you moving? If he does something great and you're like, well, what about Moses? He said, he's going to change. Abraham's going to change God's mind. Yes, there are moments of that, but Abraham didn't go to God every time that God said something and said, now you're going to do this God. No, most of the time it's just like, Hey, what's happening? No, what's happening is everybody needs a break. Go home. That's actually what God is doing. Easy. Hey, you know what? There's not, I'm not feeling much this morning. Sweet. Let's just not try to whatever. Well, let's stir it up. 
Well, what are you going to stir up the room into some sort of response that actually isn't God, but everybody feels good about it when they leave? Whoop-de-ding-dong. All that takes is a charismatic leader. It doesn't take God. Does that make sense? So, good. Wherever you want to go. Take us there. Uh, well, no, I didn't say don't hang out with them. I just said don't do it. Well, look at like, so Jesus goes up to, let's say, Jesus goes, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house tonight. You know what I mean? Or like, uh, uh, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house tonight. I'm coming to hang out. Sweet. As soon as Jesus leaves, Zacchaeus goes and gives back 10, 10 times what he stole from everybody. Do you think Jesus just sat in his house and didn't say anything? I mean, he obviously convicted it. There was a conviction that set in that he had to go change his life. Or the rich young ruler, which is even better. The rich young ruler just walks up. We, we are dying for conversion moments like this. People run up to you and go, what do I do to get into heaven? All you should have done is say, bow your head, close your eyes, and repeat after me. I believe in me. You know what I mean? Like, and should have just made him repeat the prayer. What he did is say, have you killed anyone? Have you lied to anyone? Have you cheated anyone? And he says, no, I haven't done any of those things. And he says, sweet, sell everything you own and come follow me. And it says that the man walked away sad because he had many possessions. He walks away and Jesus doesn't chase him down. Doesn't say, hey, if you just would have meant it in your heart, let's go get a latte and hang out and talk about it. He literally lets him walk away. So for us, the part of it is us just saying, we're not going to accept a living that actually defames the God that I love. And he's a friend of sinners because he didn't judge them. They, he judged what he did. Okay, let me put it this way. I believe that the judgment of God looks like Jesus showing up on the scene and not saying a word. Jesus show, The judgment of God, when billions show up, he's not going to set you up in a line and go, you, this is all the things you did, this is all the things you did. Literally what's going to happen is billions of people will be on a glassy sea. Jesus will show up in the middle of them. They will see him and go, oh my God, that's nothing like I planned, and they'll end up in hell. Or they'll go, that's everything I've lived my life for, and they'll end up with him for eternity. He doesn't even have to say a word because once the standard shows up, everybody sees it. He was a friend of sinners because all he had to do was walk into a room and people would go, I either love you or I hate you. That's all I needed to see. And what's going to happen for a lot of us is the standard friend of sinners means I'm here, guys. Well, we hate you and want to kill you. And most of the people that wanted to kill him were the religious people. Because what, why? Why did they want to kill him? Because he was handing over love to the people they felt didn't deserve it. So those people that are broken and manifesting a bunch of terrible stuff are only doing it because they're looking for love. And once love shows up on the scene, it changes everything. So they'll look at you and go, why aren't you having a drink? Why aren't everybody's being sarcastic and laughing at it? Why aren't you laughing at it? You're so judgmental. Oh, no, no, no. I just really love that person. I don't want to see anything bad said about them. What, do you not drink? No, I just, I just, I don't really like it anymore. It's not something that I do. You don't have to make a statement about it. You know what I mean? Some people that are super, like, you don't have to be super saved about it. You just don't do it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like you need to go, well, yes, and I have a doctrinal statement on it. No, you know what I mean? Like, are you not drinking? Well, yes, and let me tell you what Jesus says about you, sinner. You know? That's way different than just going, oh, no, I just really like my Diet Coke. I even put lime in it when I get reckless. 
But do you see how that's kind of silly and funny? But it's like, it just kills the room. You know what I mean? It's like, it just diffuses the, like, you know, sometimes I go wild and I'll put two limes in it or I'll get a Shirley Temple. Watch out, folks. Just line them up. Give me six of them and put them in a beer mug. You know what I mean? And it's like, just make, who cares? Like, you know what I mean? Like, we just need to just have fun with our lives and not worry. Because see, the thing is, is it's like, then all of a sudden, if you're allowed to have one, are you allowed to have two? Because two, I don't really feel anything. So it's really, is that okay? So is two okay? Well, is two and a half okay? Well, then is just one hard drink okay? Because that equals the same about maybe like two or three beers. So is that kind of okay? So then am I allowed to have one or two? Well, everybody else is having like four or five and they're getting drunk. I guess I could have two and that's okay. Maybe we'll have a good conversation because we're here for a while. Do you see how that gets confusing? <laughs> like, like, but you know what I mean? Well, if you're allowed to have two, but I'm a little smaller or you're a little bigger, like how, who's allowed to have what? Like, what's the rule here? You know? And so for me, it just gets all weird. So I'm just like, eh, forget it. It's just not worth it. You know what I mean? And then I was like, well, maybe it's okay with just my friends. And then it's like, actually, I'd rather just pray with my friends. Maybe that makes me sound super religious. I just love hanging out with my friends at my house and praying. I know I'm so boring, but like, I just, I've, and I guess I'm a little farther along in life. So I'm just like, it's just not interesting to me anymore. That's not something I want to argue. I'd rather talk about the deeper things. You know, and so it sets you up as a standard in the midst of your friends to go, what does she have that I don't have? Because she's not bummed out that she's not allowed. Because then some people are like, I can't drink. It's against the Lord. No, it's okay. You guys can. It's fine. It's fine. You guys can. It's okay. I don't, I don't judge you guys. It's totally fine. I'm just suffering for Jesus. You know what I mean? And that's the other part of it. And it's like, oh my God, stop being drama and just for real, just have a beer. You're going to be a better person. You know what I mean? Like at that point, I don't even care if you drink because you're just, you're annoying to me. You know what I mean? Like I'd rather you have a beer and feel bad because you already feel bad, you know? And so for me, do you see what I'm saying though? It's like, just freaking enjoy life. Don't worry about it. And just sit there and go, I just am looking for something else. You don't need to tell them why. They'll ask you. No, go for it, man. That's exactly right. You're exactly right. What you're doing is setting a standard for a new normal. And the new normal is like that I'm actually consumed with Christ so much that I just don't care about much else. So when I'm around my friends and I'm around unbelievers even, it just comes off of me. Because I'm not really concerned about much else. You know? And so all of a sudden, all these little topics that that are a big deal right now, I'm just telling you from somebody who's, you know, who is like 10 to 12 years, a little, like some of your seniors, which is actually makes me want to throw up in my mouth. Um, is like, is like all of a sudden that stuff really doesn't matter much anymore. All the little things you're trying to figure out, uh, they just fade away. They're just not that heavy of a deal, you know? And I think it's exactly what you said, man. It's, it's, it's a new normal. So go ahead. Sweet. Awesome. Um, Check. 
Can I be really like raw and honest? Well, I don't <laughs> normally like that kind of thing. Okay. But if you can, that's fine. Um, so there's a lot of like my brother and sister-in-law. Their like their marriage is like really rough right now, yep. and it's like. It's hard on me because I want to say so much. And I love everything that you've been saying on marriage because I feel like it's everything and it's almost like they need to hear. But it's like, I don't know how to, like, I want to say it out of love, of course, but it's like, I don't know if I have a place to even really. Are you married? Huh? Are no. you married? Then I'm you're not. just an intercessor. <sighs> okay. I'm just being as yeah. honest as I can with you. Yeah. Because your life experience doesn't give you an authority in that yeah. area. Does that make sense? Yeah. And sometimes you'll be, it's like you'll be speaking above your pay grade at that point. Yeah. Now, here's the cool part. Here's what could happen mm -hmm. when you become an intercessor in that way. Like, yeah. I mean, a devoted intercessor to that cause. Yeah. What happens is then you get your authority from that intercession yeah. and they come to you asking questions that you actually shouldn't have authority in yeah. because you've earned it in the spirit. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so sometimes we get to try to speak. It's, it's a lot of like, you guys aren't going to get all the training you need to go into another country that's like consumed with another religion and try to speak to that religion that's been in it for centuries. <laughs> you know what I mean? Your, your authority is not going to come from you being a, a professor of another faith. What, you're, what your authority is going to come from is intercession. You're going to get on your face. You're going to cry out to Jesus. You're going to lift up Jesus. And in the midst of that, they're going to walk to you and go, hey, look, our, our stuff is a mess. Can you, like, I just need to little, know a little bit more about Jesus because I feel like I don't understand. And, you'll, and what ends up happening is you go, let me tell you about love. I, I, can't, I don't know marriage, so I can't help you with a marriage. But what I can tell you is I know what love looks like. See how that's different? And it changes the game because all of a sudden you're like, I know what love looks like. And you can do something with love. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's, that's what I would say. Yeah. You know? If that helps. That help? No, it does. Okay. Yeah. Who else? Anybody else? A couple more and we'll finish off the love stuff. It only took us two days. Um. Yeah, I, I, a question that I have is like, you know, like I feel like I know, you know, it's, it's such a conviction in my heart what you're saying about with like, you know, just giving without reciprocal expectations, right? Without that. But at the same time, like our heart's the wellspring of life. And it almost seems like we need to guard how we give. And like also knowing is it going to be received like because it could be taken as junk yep. and and that's that's where i feel is like that's it's almost like how do you walk through it so you don't feel like you wasted your time or your energy or so on you know it sounds like a totally cheesy answer but it's it's exactly what we we're saying over here it's like it really is i've actually found my fullness in christ alone mm -hmm. so no matter where i am or what i receive i'm fine I actually am okay. Mm. And when we find that fulfillment in Christ alone, which it's hard because we've made that such a canned answer because nobody's doing it. Like love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Like that's the commandment. That's what you need to do. And we're like, yeah, but what do we do after we're done with that? Well, no, you know, that'll take you a lifetime. Mm. 
you know? And we have to find our fulfillment in Christ alone. Do we find our fulfillment in knowing a few truths about God, that he really is all that I need, that he really is my all in all? We sing it like, you are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. That was a good version. I'm going to record that. But it's like we say those things, like, you're my all in all. And it's like, well, really, he's not, because the first time somebody comes against you, you're totally destroyed, and you don't know what to do with your life. And it's like, no, like, he really is everything you need. Like, go and learn how to hear his voice. Go get on, go be with him. But because we don't know him, we actually don't trust him, and we don't really want his voice. We want the voice of another human being. We want somebody else to affirm us because we don't know if we're going to get the affirmation from God because we haven't spent enough time developing that relationship. Does that make sense? And that's harsh. That, I mean, that sounds super harsh to say. So I'm like, I'm saying that this is a guy saying this, who's been doing that for like the last uh, six years. Okay. Like for six years, I've given myself to one aim. I'm just going to pour myself into God. And when an opportunity like this comes great, I'll take it. But Come hell or high water, my life is not going to change if I never get another invite. If I don't ever get another invite to speak or lead worship, my life wasn't going to change. Like, I know what I'm doing with the Lord. I told you that yesterday. If I feel any separation based on my actions or based on my time and my schedule or my finances, like, it actually grieves me now because I know what it's like to be close. And when you know what it's like to be close, to have that just a little bit of distance, it grieves you. It's, it's, it destroys me. I can't have it. Or when, I, or when I talk to my kids harshly, or I talk to my wife in an inappropriate way, all of a sudden my heart, it's like I have to, I'm, my wife will tell you, I'm the immediate apologizer. <laughs> That's what I am. I'm like the I'm sorry king. Like, I shouldn't have said that. I'm so sorry. And she's like, it's not even fair because I never even get a chance to say I'm sorry because you're always saying you're sorry first. Because it's like, I just feel like I don't want any of that, that, that separation. Does that make sense? I want a closeness with him where no matter what happens in my life, I'm okay because I have him. But that's what's available to you. That actually is available to you, even though most of us don't ever develop that in our lives. We find our security in ministry and doing work. So when that is ripped from us, we're lost. Does that make sense? It's not a practical step-by-step. It's just more of the broad answer. Like we'll get to a step-by-step. Some of the things that I was talking about revelation by meditation, how do you foster a relationship with him where you actually begin to feel that and live in that we'll get to, but that's the big answer. The big answer is it is actually close. It is actually possible for you to get so close with Jesus that you actually, when everybody else says you're an idiot, you don't feel like an idiot. When everybody else says you're wrong, you don't feel like you're wrong. When everybody else rejects you, you don't feel rejected. That actually is possible. For everyone in this room and everybody on planet Earth, that actually is possible. What else? A couple more. I like this. I hope this is helpful. Good. Uh, so this is kind of like off topic from everything. Great. But um, how do you see Jesus? Like when you think about the Lord... Like, what do you see and like, what does he mean? And how can I get that? Because <laughs> I just oh, love Jesus it. is, uh, he is my best friend. He really is my best friend. There's, there's something about the beauty of the man with fire in his eyes. And he still loves me. 
that he sees my nakedness and my barrenness and still wants to be my friend. As many times as I pushed him away and told him I don't want anything to do with him on platforms all over the planet. And he still says yes to me and died for me and said, no, you're, no, my love is enough for you. You don't have to get anything else. If you just get that you're loved and that I'm going to pursue you and that I'm going to be your husband. The revelation of me being the bride and him being the husband, that I'm actually the desire of his heart above every other thing in all of eternity. He chose me. That, that's enough for me. That he left his godhood, he left his throne to come down and get me and live in a manger and suffer and die when I said no to him. That's enough for me. That's the man that I see. And to know that he's going to come back and he's going to set it all right so that I can be with him forever. That's enough for me. That's enough. The fact that I can look through the Old Testament and he's been preparing forever for me. That's enough. But you don't get that overnight. You have to put that thing through the fire. I, to me, it ends up being the prayer of, it ends up being the prayer of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like they're about to be thrown in the fiery furnace. And what do they say? Today, O king, our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, let it be known today that we did not bow before you. And they get thrown into the fiery furnace and they don't just get delivered. But where there was three men, a fourth man showed up. And I feel like the Lord asks me all the time, are you willing to get in the fire with the faith that even if you die, you will glorify me? Even if I burn up your reputation, I burn up everything around you that you've worked so hard for. If I burn it all to the ground, is that enough that I'm with you? And there's, I'm not perfect at it, but that's the man I see. I see a man who's a friend and closer than a brother, but he really is the rider on the white horse with fire in his eyes who does not play games with my sin. He doesn't play games with my junk or my attitude. He calls me on it because he loves me. That man is beautiful. And I love him with everything I have in me. And I just want to be closer to him in 80 years than I am right now. That's all I want. If I get one thing with my life, it's that I'll be closer to Jesus when I die. That's all I'm asking for. Because I know if I'm closer to Jesus, I'll be better to my family. I'll be a better husband. I'll be a better father. I'll be a better leader. I'll be a better prophetic voice. I'll be a better worship leader. I'll be, all, I'll be a better all those if I'm just pursuing the man. So. All right, let's go keep going then. Number eight. Love is not irritable. And some of your translations may say love is not easily angered. Which is really hard for me because being passionate, its downfall is that I can have a temper and I want to punch a hole in a wall. <laughs> and it's not a joke. I'm like, I literally go from like zero to 60 passion and I go zero to 60 anger and I have to keep it in check. I'm not violent, but I get angry. Does that make sense? You know the difference. The difference, violent, you're like going to hurt something. And then anger is like. Ah! That's the way I feel. But it also is the same thing that makes me passionate. So I have to be, I have to keep one in check and keep the other one growing, which is hard. So hard. I promise you the thing that makes you great is probably also your biggest weakness. <laughs> it's just like that. 
Well, you're a great leader. That's awesome. You'll actually probably push, push ahead and forget that people matter because you're so busy leading. You know what I mean? It's those things that you have to keep in check. And that's just me being honest with you guys. That's actually my biggest thing that I have to keep in check is that I get so frustrated that I'm like, I'm just frustrated with everything around me. And I want to turn off and I get like all bummed out about it. And then I feel all guilty and convicted and whatever. It's my life. But love does not, love is not irritable. And it's, um, what it recognizes, this is the beauty of it, is that if you're not irritable, love recognizes that I am not perfect and I'm not going to get it right every time. So that way failure is not fatal and I don't have to get frustrated with my failures. You guys, one of the best parts about love is that it's, that, that failure is not fatal. Failure is not fatal, which means that just because I love Danny Silk put it this way from, from Bethel. He said, when I walk through the yard and step on a nail, I don't yell, I'm a nail. But yet what we end up doing is we go through life, fall into a failure and go, fall into one failure and go, I'm a failure. I should never do that again. No, you stepped on a nail, pull the nail out, clean yourself up and move forward. Look, you fell into something. Great. Pick yourself up and move forward. You cannot let that one failure define the rest of your life. If you're not getting failure is where you actually will learn the most. I mean, any company, any organization, go ahead and do your study from Apple to Google, study them all. And you'll find the same thing. Their greatest failures were also the moments where they saw the most growth. Let's look at it this way. Jesus dies. That looks like a failure. Even though the devil thought he won. And Jesus goes, oh, three days later, I resurrected and changed the whole planet forever. It's like, oh, yeah, that worked out, didn't it? (laughs) Well, I should have paid attention to that. Dang it. Does that make sense? It's like you cannot get frustrated because you failed or because you broke something or because it didn't go the way you planned. That's just life. Life is like that. I I prayed for, I I know, for three years every day. I know when it ended, but it's, it's, I, I, For three years, every day, my first prayer, every single morning when I'd get into the house of prayer was the same. God, make me unmovable and unshakable in you and you alone. That was my prayer. Make me unmovable and unshakable in you you alone. I would just pray it over and over, the same words. God, make me unmovable and unshakable in you and you alone. Amen. God, make me unmovable and unshakable in you and you alone. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know what that means, but that's what I want. I don't want to be moved by everything that comes into my life by every up and down. And I'll tell you what, if my wife was standing here right now, she would tell you I have gotten a lot better in the 10 years, 11 years of our marriage than I was at our first beginning where it's just like something would go wrong. I'd be like, oh, that's it. The day is over. And she'd be like, what are you, a seven-year-old? Yes, I am. I don't care. It's all this day sucks. <laughs> that's, a, that's manhood for you. It's just, it just sucks. So it's just like, but that was my life. Like I would just be like, ah, oh, it's over, you know? And now it's like, I see it, but now I can see it coming. I'm like, oh, this is going to try to get me. <laughs> so what it did, that prayer, what it did was gave me eyes to see and ears to hear. What the spirit was saying in all those moments. And so now when something happens that's totally out of bounds or something that I did not expect, I don't get as frustrated with it. I just get to, I actually get to respond to it healthy and learn from it so that I become a better person on the other side and model something different for my kids than what they got, what I got modeled for me. So you have to accept that life in general is not perfect. It's bumpy and out of control 90% of the time. If you just accept that now, you'll be a much happier human being. Okay. Most of what you plan will fail or not happen. And if you just accept that, you'll actually end up somewhere better.
than what you planned or what you thought. It's just that simple. <laughs> it really is. We'll go into Hebrews 11 later, but it's all these people in the middle of it. It says and all, none of them received what they were promised. Well, that's got to be frustrating, seeing as how what you were promised came from God. But were you disappointed? No, they found something better. See, that's the beauty of it. You can actually find something better if you don't get frustrated in the failure. And I'll just say this. When we lose our tempers, we lose everything. Those who can control their tempers can overcome anything. That's what the Lord told me. That's what the Lord told me. When I was praying through this stuff, um, when I was praying through this years ago, the Lord said, when we lose our tempers, we lose everything. You lose your authority when you lose your temper. Those who can control their tempers can overcome anything. Now, love keeps no record of wrongs. <laughs> this is the best one. I love this one. In scripture, this term was used for accounting. So it's basically like a lawyer term. It keeps no records. It's basically like a booking term, like you, basically an accounting term where it was like they kept a ledger of everything. See, in Jewish culture, they would keep a ledger of every family, the history of every family in the temple. That's why when the temple was burned, it was like the 12 tribes were all scattered because there was a literally running tab of every family, all that they had done, all that they had accumulated, all that they had been through. It was a long record of all the histories of all the families and all of Jewish history. I mean, it's a big deal. Okay. This is a big deal. And what so what Jesus, what, what God is addressing actually in this scripture is their love to keep a record. God says, I'm actually going to address that by telling you, I keep no record of wrongs. I actually erase them and throw them as far as east is from west. Therefore, when you try to bring it up to me, this is what it looks like. You go to God and go, God, I'm, I'm so sorry for that thing I did three years ago. And he's like, what thing? And he's like, I know that, you know, that thing I did. You know, I'm just bummed out about it. I'm still, my life is still defined by it. I'm so sorry for it. And he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he goes, and you go, no, God, that thing when I fell and I stumbled and I, I did that thing wrong. I'm so sorry, God. And he's like, well, this is awkward. I, um, I have no idea what you're talking about. And we keep trying to convince God he should remember our junk because we still feel bad about it. And God is literally looking at you, not because he doesn't remember, but because he literally keeps no record of it. God only divinely edits his memory in one place, your sin. Wow. Everything else he remembers. See, see, I think this is what we think. We feel like God, what he does is he goes, oh, he doesn't keep a record of it. But there's actually a file back there somewhere that he could pull it up anytime he wants because he's God and he kind of remembers everything. No, he says, no, literally, with the blood of Jesus actually divinely edits my memory and I keep no record of it. It's actually gone. God literally does not remember your sin because he erased it from his mind. So you bring it up because you feel guilty and God is telling you, I don't remember that. That's how you thought grace was good. No, it's way better than you thought. That's why Paul has to say, just because grace is really awesome, don't keep sinning. He has to, rem do you understand? That's how, that's how great grace is. It literally, your first reaction in your flesh is, well, then I'm just going to keep on sinning. If it's that good, I'm really, I'm just going for it. And Paul says, no, it really is that good. Just don't cheapen it by continuing to live in sin. Show everybody how great it is by transforming your entire life. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. 
show the world that it's so good, you live a life that recognizes how great it really is. Love keeps no record of wrongs. So now let me take it to a really personal level. So why are you remembering everybody else's? Why are you treating people as their sin deserves instead of showing them the same grace that you've been given? No, you don't understand what they did to me. No, you don't understand what you did to God. We have, to, we have to start loving people in the same way that God loves us so that they can experience the same love on earth that we're going to experience in eternity. We have to love people this way. Do you see why this is so important? Because it's so beautiful that if we actually did it, people might actually see Jesus. <laughs> they might actually see the Lord in us. Wouldn't that be nice? The best news we could, we could ever share with a dying world Is that God keeps no record of their wrongs and wants to love them despite them. That's the best news we could tell the world. Because most of the world wants to tell you what you've done wrong and what you don't deserve. And God wants to tell you who you really are and what you do deserve. But I I must say that... uh, (laughs) I I put it this way. This is one of the things I wrote down. The devil knows your name and calls you by your sin. The father knows your sin and calls you by your name. The devil knows your name and calls you by your sin. The father knows your sin and calls you by your name. That's how much the father loves you. Next one, the love does not love does not delight in evil. We should never rejoice in the misfortunes of others because you're just as fallible as they are. I don't know. I, I would say it this way. I'm a one point Calvinist. <laughs> if you don't know that Calvinism has more than one point, you should look it up and check it out. But I am a one point Calvinist. And my one point Calvinistic view is that the depravity of man is a real thing. That if you don't recognize how broken you are, you will judge everybody else whose brokenness is clearly available for you to judge. If you don't recognize how broken and fallible you are, that you are just as capable of falling into sin as somebody else, you will actually, you will actually fall into the same sin. I watched, and I'll tell you this, I just watched it in a dude's life. I just watched it. This guy knew a high-level dude who just, he was around a high-level guy who fell, whose marriage fell because the guy fell into adultery. And every time I was around this other leader, he would mock that leader that fell. And he would say, dude, that guy did this. That guy did this. He fell here. He said this. Isn't he arrogant? Isn't he this? I just found out a month and a half ago that the dude just fell into adultery himself. Because he wasn't recognizing that that same sin that that guy fell into that he was busy mocking was actually in his own heart. It grieved me. Like for, I just cried over it for like a week because I was like, God, may that never be me. I will never, I will never ever mock another man's misfortune. And I didn't ever remember that it was right here in 1 Corinthians 13. While I was grieving over it, as soon as I started writing these notes down, I remembered love does not delight in evil. And let me tell you where it comes from. You thought sarcasm was bad? Gossip is even worse. 
How dare you think you have the right to talk about somebody else's junk with somebody who doesn't ever need to hear it? How dare you? How dare you share the tragedy of somebody else's life with someone else who does not need to hear it? You are delighting in evil when you do that because you love having the information and want to be the one who shares it with everyone else. We need to kill a spirit of gossip that's in the body of Christ. We have to destroy a spirit of gossip that wanders around the body of Christ saying that you should be, you have the right to be involved in everybody else's business. No, you do not have the right to be involved in everybody else's business unless they want you involved. Therefore, do not believe anything you're told. And this is what I do now. People will come to me and they will say, hey man, I just found out this. Stop. I don't want to hear it. No, but man, like this, it's really relevant to what you're going through. Don't care. It's not my business. Nope. Don't want to hear it. Dude, you know, I've seen more people get offended at that than a ton of stuff. (laughs) Because what I just told them is they're wrong and they're not allowed to share it. And they know they're wrong before they even tried to share it. But they, but they're, uh, but they didn't want to look at it. Just stop it. As soon as somebody starts going into it, stop it. If it's happening at a table, say, hey, if you guys are going to talk about this, I can't stay. I got to go. Talk to you guys later. Don't put yourself around it. And here's what happens. Here's the fruit on the other side. If you will push gossip out of your life, the secrets that you don't need to hear, God will begin to trust you with the secrets that you're supposed to hear. Because he knows he can trust you to keep his secrets. That's the fruit of a life that rejects gossip and doesn't delight in evil. I don't know if I can. I just said it. I, you, what did I just say? Oh, the fruit thing. Okay, yeah. If I was like, how far back? <laughs> the, the fruit of a life that doesn't receive gossip is a life that God can trust with his secrets. Because God has secrets that he wants to share with his people. That's, it's, I, I wish I had the passage on the tip of my tongue. But a passage in scripture where God wants to share his secrets with man. And he wants to share his secrets with man. But the truth is we're untrustworthy at this point to share secrets. Because we're so concerned about gossiping the secrets of everybody else. If God can't trust you to steward the things of his heart. He can't share them with you. Most of what God shares, God, oh, let me say it this way. Let me, if you need a good teaching on prophecy, most of what you hear, you're not supposed to share. You're supposed to pray. Jeremiah says this. If any man calls himself a prophet, then let him, then let him intercede. Real prophets are intercessors. That's what he says. Because most of what I'm telling you, I actually want you to pray about and not share. That's why I'm giving you my secrets. Because I know you'll steward them and go to war for them in the secret place where nobody else gets to hear it. Does that make sense? Love rejoices with the truth. Some people have used this verse, like I said earlier, some people have used verses like this to say, well, I'm just speaking the truth of love. No, you're not. You're being rude and you're being a jerk. They say what they want, however they want, and people are supposed to just get over it because it's the truth. Love builds up even when it's correcting. If the person is not built up when they've left your presence, you need to apologize because you did it wrong. They didn't receive it wrong. Does that make sense? People should feel loved even when they're being rebuked. (laughs) If they don't feel loved, it's your fault, not theirs. Because we should err on the side of love. 
Does that, does that help? <laughs> we should err on the side of love. If you know somebody who's going through something and you need to call them on it, if you can't do it with tears, you shouldn't do it at all. Does that make sense? If, if you're going to somebody and you're like, well, man, I know about something, so I got to go tell them. And your plan is just to go up to them and just say, hey, man, I know you're dealing with something. You need to get over it. If you're not going to do it with tears in your eyes and a broken heart for what they're going through, you're the wrong person. You just have information, not truth. Because the truth is that fruit is coming from a root. And if you're more concerned about the fruit than you are the root, you're in the wrong. Because we are so worried in the church about the fruit. We're so worried about the fruit over here that's hanging. The sin that's, 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 sh- that's showing up. That they're seeing and it's manifesting. But we don't realize that that fruit is actually coming from a root system way down here. That if it's not cut off at the root, even if you address the, the fruit of the sin. Even if you address the fruit of the sin. And you don't deal with the root, the, the fruit will come back again. Disciplining yourself only works if the root system is torn out. Does that make sense? You can only learn discipline when the root system has been changed. If the root system hasn't been changed, you're going to keep bearing the same fruit because you're just going to keep doing the same habits and the same things are going to produce. We have to get rid of the root system. Say it. Yeah, go for it. It, I can only speak, I can only speak from you addressing them because how they, the, them receiving it, I can't address that because I don't know where they're at or the situation would be way different. But I know for me, if I'm going to address you, if my heart is not grieved over it and broken and it causes me to tear up about it, then I'm not the right person. If you don't feel, yeah, don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. He's going to show somebody else. Or if you do know it and you only have the information, but not a broken heart, ask God to break your heart. See, because this is the root of intercession. I have information, but I don't have a broken, I don't have a broken heart for it. God, like you guys are going to a nation, so you have information. But has God broken your heart for the place you're going to yet? If he hasn't, you're going to go there with information and you'll do good stuff, but it won't manifest in power because you haven't been broken over it yet. Does that make sense? So when you, that's what I would say. That's the part I would address. Like I want to be broken over somebody else's sin. If it's not grieving me that my brother is in sin and I just want to go give them right information, I need to ask God to break my heart or pray for somebody else to do it. Because then if you, I mean, imagine the difference. You're going to call somebody out because they're sleeping with their boyfriend and you're like, Hey, I know you're sleeping with your boyfriend. And all the information is correct. Their immediate response is, I don't know what you're talking about. Or, or you're a jerk. I know what you've done and you did. Da, 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 da. But if you come in broken, look, I just, I, I heard this is going on or I know this is happening. I, how can I help you? What can I do? Like, I, I know you don't, I know you don't want to be there. I, I know that you're, this is hard and you're trying and it's hiding. I just, please, how can I help you? I want to serve you. I want to love you. Please just tell me how to love you. How can I take care of you? Then, even if they reject it, because the response is unimportant at that point, even if they reject it, they received it in such an air of love that that will speak to them later. Does that make sense? Same thing with another nation. We go in and our hearts are broken for the people. Oh, it's way different. 
You know, that's the whole Salvation Army quote we've heard a hundred times around YWAM, you know? It's like, try tears. You know what I mean? It's like, that's what actually works. At the end of the day, that's what works. Like, let God break your heart and you'll, you'll have power. It'll manifest in conviction and the Holy Spirit every single time. You know, I mean, that's Jesus. He's standing look, overlooking Jerusalem, who's about to put him on a cross, and he's weeping over Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how you slain your prophet. He's not going, Oh, Jerusalem, God, we ask for fire to come and crush them right now. You know what I mean? Ah! You know, and he's like literally brokenhearted, going, They're rejecting the very thing that's supposed to bring them life. Oh, God, help them. Or he's on the cross saying, Forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. What? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like, God, kill them all. They threw me on a tree. I gave them breath and life. Kill them all. You know what I mean? He's broken over it. He's been moved. And most of us haven't been moved. We just have good information. There's a difference. Love bears all things. This, I would put it this way. Till death do us part. Till death do us part. We say it at weddings. Yet divorce is rampant in the church. I, I want to, people are praying for cancer-free zones, praying for more healings. I want to see divorce-free zones all over the planet. I want to see churches that are 100% divorce-free. 100% divorce-free. I want to see cities of refuge where divorce rates are zero. I want to see the church go without any divorces for years and years at a time. And the world looks to us and says, how do you do it? And we say, love bears all things till death do us part. Well, but does that mean your marriage is perfect? No, it went through hell, but I didn't give up. I'm not quitting. God didn't quit on me. I'm not quitting on my spouse. I'm not quitting on my children. I'm going for it. And I'll tell you what, the Bible's very clear. God hates divorce. And guess what? Anybody whose parents are divorced in this room says, I agree with God. I hate divorce. That's, some people go, see, God hates divorce. Well, don't preach that, brother. That's judgment because a lot of people have been divorced. No, anybody who's been through a divorce hates that they went through a divorce. Anybody. Even if they were wronged in the divorce, they hate that they were wronged in the divorce. They hate that they married someone who cheated on them. They hate divorce. God hates divorce. Why does he hate divorce? Because he hates broken covenant. The thing that God hates more than anything is broken covenant. When people say yes and they don't follow through. God hates when people say yes, they covenant forever and they say no to the covenant because it got hard. The number one reason for divorce, irreconcilable differences. Shut up. That's not even a real thing. No differences are irreconcilable. With Christ, there is no irreconcilable differences. Could you imagine if God just said, well, I tried to save him, but just irreconcilable differences. We just couldn't agree on some theological points, so I sent him to hell. Till death do us part. Come hell or high water, we're sticking in this thing. Oh, there'd, be, there'd only be one denomination on the planet if that was true. Hear that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you ask a question, but hear that. There would not be denominationalism on the planet if we just agreed that even though we disagree, we're one body. Yeah. There's a difference between denominationalism and denominations. Denominationalism is a spirit that says, I will not have anything to do with you because we do not agree. Denominational, that's what denominationalism says. 
That's a spirit. I don't think God's anti-denominations. God's anti-a spirit of denominationalism, which says we'll divide just because we don't agree. We're getting divorced because we don't agree. Oh, well, it was just hard. I guess I'll get married again to somebody else. No, the thing that's wrong is inside of you. Get it out and you can actually make the thing work. Go ahead. Okay, so this isn't relevant in my life, but I know it's always been something I've talked to my parents about. Is how, like, the reasons for divorce, like, addictions. Like, what if it's not you? What if it's the other person who's an alcoholic or addicted to drugs or porn or anything? Is that, like, do you, you know, I get you can go to counseling, you can go to God with it. But if that other person is not willing to change, is that an excuse? Is that a reason? Okay, I'm going to, look, this is just me. Okay, so please do not make this a theological statement and write it down as law. But I will tell you this. This is my experience. This is what I've told people and done in counseling. I'm sorry that that is happening to you. But you staying says more about who God is in your life than if you leave. Now, if you're being hurt or your kids are being hurt or you're being abused, you don't get divorced. You get out. And we've had people, literally, I've had people flee to my house in the middle of the night with their kids in their PJs. And they've slept on our floors and we've taken care of them. And I've stood in doorways thinking I was going to get the hell beat out of me. (laughs) Standing in between a dad and his wife and his kids. But I feel like that's what the father does. But he also is the same God that told, is is it Habakkuk or Haggai? Is it Habakkuk? That said, uh, Mary, Mary... Mary prostitute, Hosea. It's one of the H's. Thank you. Um, but Hosea, I mean, he says, marry a prostitute. And she's going to keep sleeping around and don't leave her. Why? Because that displays my love. So for me, it's like, does God love the addicts? Does God abandon the addicts? Does God abandon the hurting and the dirty and the dying? Just because they're hurting and dirty and dying? No. Now that's easy. Now I'm telling you this. I'm saying that. I don't have to live it. I'm, I'm just saying it. And I've talked to people who have, and they want me to be really kind to them and tell them that they're allowed to leave. And I cannot see anything biblical that says they're allowed to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, if they, if that person chooses to like bail, then they bail. But on our side as believers, we, we stay. Not an abuse. Maybe very clear. Abuse is something completely different. We do not, you're, especially if there's kids especially if there's kids, those kids should not view that. They should not be around it. They should be saved from that. They should be spared from that. And if the person changes and that they can figure that out, that's great. But like, again, it goes back to what my brother over here was asking. If we don't find our fullness in God, we'll end up divorcing just so that we can find appreciation from some other human being. But we're never going to find the appreciation we're looking for unless we find it in God first. My wife stuck with me for eight years, never feeling fulfilled because I was married to ministry. She was not getting anything she needed, wanted, or desired and stayed in the marriage because she found something in God that she wasn't finding in me. My wife is a saint. She, should, she has a big house in heaven. I hope I can stay there. But you know what I'm saying? And I was in ministry. That's me being in ministry. How much more the person that's not saved and you got married to him? That's why getting married is a huge freaking decision. Don't make it because you have an emotion. Make it because you're signing up for a lifetime. 
But we're not teaching our kids that. We're not teaching them about marriages. We're throwing them in a culture of divorce and saying, get married. If it doesn't work out, get divorced. It's okay. And no church addresses it because we don't want to lose attendees and definitely don't want to lose any giving. No, address it so that our kids know that they're freaking safe. Do you know how much safer our kids would feel if we preached in our churches on a regular basis? God hates divorce and he's very sad for your broken heart. He hates it as much as you hate it. And he hates it with the same passion that you hate it that hurts your family. He hates it. But he's going to protect you. Does that make sense? And for those, like, for real, for those of you that have been through a divorce, you, I, I'm so sorry. As a dad, I'm just so ridiculously sorry. I don't, I don't even know. I, whenever I get to that place, I just, it, it grieves me to such a degree that kids have got, had to go without parents, have had to go without a dad. Like, that just, that grieves my heart to no end because I just want to adopt a thousand kids and move them into my house and tell them how great they are and how loved they are. I just do because I don't, I don't, we are in a fatherless generation and it's not fair that you don't have dads or that your dad is still there and he's busy working 80 hours a week to pay off a bunch of stuff that you honestly, at the end of the day, could care less about because you just wish you were, your dad was freaking home and would go swimming with you or go ride a bike with you. But you do have a dad and he does love you. Go ahead. Sorry. I don't believe because that. I totally like, I believe that it should be like a commitment and everything, all that totally. stuff. But, um, so this is kind of going off what Courtney was saying, but if like your husband, like if he's involved in like pornography or whatever it would be, um, and if, if his sin is like hindering you from like being close to God, no, that's right there. You're wrong. His sin cannot hinder okay. you from being close to God. That's okay. the first statement that's wrong. I'm not trying to be harsh with you. That's, right. but, but no. that's really like, cause that's what we end up thinking. Okay. Well, no, he can't hinder. You have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Your husband or wife cannot hinder that. They can't. Okay. That's either yours or it's theirs. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. What it says is if you are in that position, it says that you're actually living off of their relationship with God and not your own. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'll, I can totally address it specifically because we have friends. Literally, he, um, a friend of ours, his hus- her husband was going and getting massages. Not the good kind. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and like going to LA because his job took him into LA and mm-hmm. he would go get massages basically from prostitutes. And, and she found out about it. They are still married today. He got healing and they're still there. Plowing away. It took six years because it was an addiction cycle. Right. So then he was hiding it. He opened another credit card, crazy stuff. Even after we first found out and we tried to counsel, they got healing, a ton of stuff. But she was like, I'm committed to our marriage and we're going to seek God and we're going to get this thing broken open. Six years later, they're still married and he doesn't go anymore. To my knowledge uh, from us talking with them and working with them, you can tell he's a different person. But who wants to go through six years of hell of going, wait, great, we dealt with it. Oh, it's, go- it's there. Oh, we de- oh it's good. Oh. Who wants to do that? Only a person who has found their fullness in Christ alone. Only a person who says, I've already found my love. And now that overflow of that love is going to come onto you because I know where I'm getting filled from. You don't fill me up. All you do is supplement what God already has told me, that I'm beautiful, that I'm lovable, all those things. Does that make sense? Sorry, if that came off harsh, I apologize. Sorry. Okay. Couple more. Ready? See how heavy this stuff is. I told you, 1 Corinthians 13 is no freaking joke, okay? It's like a big deal. <laughs> it's like, when I started reading it and studying it for the last few years, I'm like, 
is this ever possible? I keep asking God, is this really possible? And I keep feeling like he says, yes, it is possible. It just takes time. That's why the first one is patience. If you're not signed up for patience, you don't get the rest. You see why that makes sense now? It's like, yeah, I want that. And he's like, okay, sweet. Sign up for 50 years. And you're like, um, I've got five days. And he's like, then you don't have time for love. Because love doesn't happen in a vacuum. You don't fall in love. That's the biggest lie on planet earth. You might fall into the emotional side of love, but you don't fall in love. Love is developed over the course of history. What ends up happening is we sign up for a wedding and not a marriage. The wedding is one day. Can you imagine if I told my wife, oh, stoked. Okay, the wedding. What time is it? Sweet. We help plan it. We get there. You know, we get to the wedding and I show up and I'm like, hey, this is awesome. I till death do us part. I do. You do. Awesome. We do. Yay. Sweet. We go out. We have the big party afterwards. Reception. Everybody's stoked. We go that night to the wedding bed. We have sex. And then the next night I go to somebody else and have sex with them. And the next time I have sex with somebody else. But then I go back to my wife and I'm, and she's like, why are you sleeping around? And I'm like, what, what do you want from me? I showed up to the marriage. I showed up to the wedding. What do you want? I'll be back on Sunday for a couple of hours. Just let me live my life the way I want. This is what we do to God. We show up to the bow our head, close our eyes, pray the prayer, but we live the rest of our life loving the world and having sex with the world and wondering why our two hours on Sunday isn't enough to fulfill what we need in our own hearts. And we go to our wedding day and have a great wedding day, but didn't realize that that wedding day is attached to 60, 70 plus years of marriage that is not fun every single day. That love is more than that little emotional high that you get, the little butterflies in your stomach. If that's what you're signing up for, for marriage, you're going to miss out on a lot of what love really is. Because when I'm a jerk and my wife tells me how great I am, makes me want to fall more in love with her. When my wife sat there for eight years, took care of our kids and didn't get anything she needed and stuck around, the last three years of our marriage have been the greatest three years of my entire life, not just my marriage. Because I've experienced love in a way nobody else could show me because of my wife said yes to marriage, not just wedding. Love always trusts. Trust is not a, is, uh, trust is not about blindly accepting anything you are told. Wisdom and love have to walk hand in hand. Okay? Let me say this. There's two trusts. Trust goes in two directions. Okay, well, let me say this too. Because uh, I want to get through the last, the last couple and then we're done. Um, with this, we can actually do something else tomorrow. But um, a good rule of thumb is if anyone tells you you can trust me, they probably aren't worthy of your trust. That's just a good rule of thumb. If somebody says, no, you can trust me, no. <laughs> no, it's okay. Like, here's the thing. Is trust doesn't look like this. I blindly trust you, therefore I, I just believe whatever you say, and I'm just stupid. No, trust is developed over time. And trust goes two directions. Trust goes towards God. We can trust what he said he will do. He will do. We can trust that what God says will actually be finished. Any promise that begins with whoever is a promise for all of us in this room. Any promise in the Bible that begins with whoever fill in the blank. That actually you should look all those promises up. Look up every promise in the Bible that begins with whoever. Because that's a promise for you and you should bank on it. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to search it out. You can trust God to go and search for that thing. You will find it. Number two, the, the other direction, toward, two directions, one towards God, two towards others. Love demands that we always believe the best in someone. 
So here's what really happens. Although trust is developed over time, you cannot walk into a new relationship and use everything else everybody else has done wrong to you to begin to build barriers in front of someone who doesn't have that history with you. And you're already six feet away from them because that other person hurt you. And just because you've been wronged in 40 other relationships doesn't mean this new dude that's standing in front of you. If you've been, if you've gone through something with the Lord, you've been redeemed and washed, get a new model of love, some of those things. It does not mean that this person standing here is going to do the exact same thing to you. Because it's like, I want new friends. And then you stand like this to everyone that comes towards you. Yes, come be my friend. You know, and then you kind of block them out. Love says that I don't have to bring in every other relationship I've had into the new relationships that God's given me. But it is developed over time to go deeper and deeper. Okay? Love always hopes. Jesus believes that no one is beyond hope. There is no hopeless cases in the kingdom. Do not tell me any stories about a person who's just too far gone because there is nobody who's too far gone. In fact, let me put it to you this way. Ready? This is... (laughs) This is, this is a much bigger theological point, but I'll tell it to you this way. You got to look it up. This blew my mind when I saw it for the first time. But look at this. So Jesus is going to the cross. Judas rejects him. Correct? Judas betrays Jesus. But here, check this out. Judas betrays Jesus, and he goes, and he hangs himself. Correct? He takes his own life. I believe that Jesus was actually what he really desired is for Judas to turn his heart, repent, and come back. Here's how I know that. There's a couple reasons I know that. Number one being, in fact, let me show it to you. I want to show it to you in the Bible because I want you to, I want you to see it. Because it blew my mind when I saw it. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> this is awesome. Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. This is all good stuff. We should read the book of Acts more. It's pretty fun. Yes. Uh, okay. This again. Sorry, I wasn't planning on going here, but... You're persecuting, go. Still the infringement. Nice departed, into the house. Went to Ananias. Uh, oh, okay, here it is. Ha! Found it. Okay. Sorry, there's too many Bible verses in my brain. It jacks it all up. And I've got all these notes along the side, so now it's hard to find my notes. So, okay. Okay, uh, it's Acts... 9 verse 11. But check this out. So I think it was God's desire for, for Judas to turn and repent. Here's why. So now there's a gap in the apostolic ministry because there was a prophetic word given by David in the psalm that there would be 12. So there's going to be 12. So what the disciples did is they chose another chosen instrument. They chose a person to fill it in by drawing straws. But here's the problem. God wanted to show that he could redeem anyone. Even someone who rejected him fully 
and, re- and betrayed him, God wanted to show that he could redeem anyone. But the disciples didn't wait for God. They chose somebody to fill it in on their own. They chose Matthias. They chose somebody on their own that was man-ordained, not God. But God knew that he wanted to find somebody just as wicked and betray- betraying as Judas to show that he could redeem anyone. He had to wait for somebody just as wicked as Judas to rise up. And it says that Saul, earlier in the book of Acts, it says that Saul, when they were stoning Stephen, what was, what was Saul carrying? The mantles of all those who were stoning Stephen. He was carrying their coats. He took on the mantles of all of those who were persecuting the church and became in that moment the most wicked person to ever pursue the church and persecute the church in that moment. So then God goes, perfect, let him persecute the church, and then guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to make sure that he ends up just as wicked and just as recognizable as Judas, and then I'm going to meet him on the road to Damascus, and here's how I can prove it. Check this out. When he gets blinded by the light on the road to Damascus, Jesus sends him to a house. Do you know what house that Jesus Jesus sent him to Acts 9 verse 11. Check it out. He's he's saying Ananias. Then the Lord said, rise and go to the street called straight. And at the house of Judas, you will find a man named Saul. There is no person too far gone. God wants to show that he can redeem the most wicked, broken, persecuting, rebellious person on the planet. And it was supposed to be Judas. But because Judas didn't turn, he waited for a man named Paul. And he let Paul go to Judas's house where Ananias shows up and removes the scales from his eyes. He gets his sight back in Judas's house and becomes one of the great, greatest evangelical forces the planet has ever known. Carrying the gospel farther than any other disciple that Jesus had. Don't tell me that there's no hope for somebody that you know. There's always hope. There's always hope. There's always hope. God wants to redeem the most wicked and turn them into the greatest evangelical forces the planet has ever known. Love always endures. Last one before love never fails. Endures. The word in the Greek is not passive. It is actually an aggressive verb. <laughs> love always endures. It is a bold and courageous action that conquers fear and demands change in the very nature of a person. Enduring is not passivity. Most of us are like, well, I'm just going to sit here. I'm just going to endure through it, brother. Just going to endure it. Just what happens. No, that's not enduring that he's talking about. He's saying to come against, come against and move with force against that thing that's coming against you. Everybody wants a breakthrough and they hit something and give up. I want a breakthrough. I want a breakthrough, but it just got hard. So I'm going to quit. What did you expect breakthrough to be like? What do you want breakthrough to be easy? If breakthrough was easy, everybody would be doing it and nobody would be transformed. If you want a breakthrough, you got to run into that thing that's hurting you a thousand times before all of a sudden you kick that thing over and it looks like it happened overnight, but it took you 20 years. Because you just kept going and kept going and kept going and kept kicking at it and kicking at it and kicking at it aggressively. You didn't just sit, you didn't just sit there and let it idly by. But here's the crazy part. If you're actually trying to build muscle, do you start with 500 pounds and go, I'll just lift this 500 pounds. 
No. What you start with is little tiny weights, repetitions, and build yourself up until you can lift more weight than you ever thought possible. But it began months in advance lifting tiny weights that were easier to lift. So all of a sudden, when 500 pounds came on, you could lift it with with very little effort because you've already been lifting a ton of smaller weights. And you've got to consistently keep pushing through. Love pushes beyond the limits and chooses the low road and puts its devotion on display for the whole world to see. Love is not love if there is no price. Everybody wants there to be love, but nobody wants to pay a price. Nobody wants to do anything about it. They just want love to manifest around them. No, you have to push in and grab a hold of it and say, I'm not letting go. Well, no, I'm going to quit on you. I don't care if you quit. I'm coming after you. (laughs) My love is not dependent on the person that I'm loving. My love is dependent on my relationship with God so that I know that I'm loved regardless of my circumstance and I'm going to keep chasing you even when you stop chasing me. Even when you quit, I'm not quitting. You do realize that most people in this room will actually quit statistically. Statistically with your age group, with your age group, It means that most of you will not endure through your 20s to follow a faith into your 50s. That's the truth right now. That's actually just information. It's not really truth because we're going to make a new truth. We're going to create a new standard where everybody finishes well and nobody becomes an excuse for being able to quit early. Okay? Because the last one is simply this. Love never fails. If you choose love, you can't lose. That's what that passage means. If you choose love, you don't lose. Love will never allow you to lose. What up, boys? Love will, you do not lose when you have love. Does that make sense? If you actually do this, if you actually live in this way, you can't lose. You cannot be let down. You cannot be disappointed because you have love. Make sense? Think about it. We'll talk about it more tomorrow. Get some questions written down. We'll talk about it when you get here. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right. Bless you guys.